This week on BSD Now, Alan is back from the Storage Summit in Silicon Valley. We're going to get his thoughts on how the conference went, plus bring you the latest ZFS info discussed. That plus the usual BSD news is headed your way right now. Now, episode 130, Store All the Things, recorded February 24th, 2016. Hey, I'm your host, Chris Moore. And I'm Alan Duke. We're glad to have you guys with us this week, and we're glad that you've made it back safely, mm-hmm. Alan, although uh, a bit tired, I'm yes. sure, from uh, <laughs> all the fun and festivities out at the uh, Storage Summit. But we'll get to that in a little bit. We won't, uh, we won't spoil everything. Alan has a lot to tell us about what happened out there. So uh, without further ado, let's get right into the headlines. And uh, we got a doozy, this first one here. Kind of starts you off a little bit lighthearted, but we have some important breaking news over at the register.co, which uh, a longstanding bug in OpenBSD in the new HTTP daemon has been uh, fixed finally after all this time. Specifically, it's changing the default 404 page fonts away from Comic Sans to a bit more crowd-pleasing uh, alternative. So uh, definitely a high-priority one. Yeah, And uh, we have a little quote here uh, from the commit, though. Uh, For some reason, the HTTPD status pages, in other words, 404s, use the Comic Sans typeface. This patch removes Comic Sans and sets the typeface to the default sans serif typeface of the client. This lowers the number of people contacting website maintainers with the typeface complaints that are bordering on harassment. (laughs) So uh, definitely a very noteworthy patch, and we're glad to see that this longstanding bug has finally been addressed and... uh, OpenBSD people isn't trolling us with uh, Comic Sans anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty nice. So, of course, we do want to just kind of make this a PSA here. So operators that are running HTTPD are highly encouraged to update their systems to the latest code right now. Yes. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, like, we're waiting. Go ahead. (laughs) Do it now. We'll we'll finish up the show when you're done. This is critical. And then... uh, this is very critical. Yeah. So uh, take your time, do it right, make sure you get that patch in, and uh, we appre- I'm sure the internet thanks you. Yep. And, you know, web administrators, thank you for not getting annoying emails. Y- you know that they spent a bit of time making it use Comic Sans in the first place when the fonts they listed in the fallback list for CSS had multiple versions of it. So yes. if you didn't have, <laughs> if you specifically went and removed Comic Sans from your machine so that it couldn't possibly render it, it would fall back to Chalkboard SE or Comic Nuo. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just to be on the certain side that you get some sort of comic. Yes. <laughs> Fine. But anyway, it's nice to see it. Says it here, uh, and again. <laughs> okay. uh, in a later post uh, in the list, it noted that the choice of Comic Sans was an attempt to solicit donations. The individuals who made the choice wanted to annoy hipsters into donating to the project. Wait, wait, wait. By annoying them, they donate? What is this? Uh, no, no, no. It'll be Comic Sans like... until you pay the no. ransom. Yeah, you're doing this wrong. That's exactly. You need to put it up on the OpenBSD project site. You have the little thermometer, and it's like, at this point, we revert some commit, or we change some default or whatever, right? And you hold that feature ransom. So, uh, not a bad idea, actually. (laughs) Yes. Well, apparently, weaponizing Comic Sans has been an ongoing joke for the last 14 years. That's that's great. Well, good deal. Well, anyway, that was a fun one to start off Mm -hmm. with. So, of course, we had to bring that to you uh, right away. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so some more serious stuff. I know it's getting later and later, but uh, it's finally happened. The registration for Asia BSDCon 2016 is now open. Yes. I registered yesterday. No, Monday. So after you register, make sure you check out this button at the bottom here, uh, meeting registration, mm-hmm. uh, because that's where you go if you want to join, say, BeehiveCon 2016. Oh, do I need to do that still? I probably messed up. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's combined with the where you can ask the conference to book your hotel for you as well. Uh, well, I've already done that, yeah. so good for hotel. Yeah, but that's uh, and great. there's uh, the registrations are now open. Yeah, but. so that'll be I think the evening of the first night, so that'll be the Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the evening of the Friday, there's a NetBSD Birds of a Feather session, uh, which is open to anyone yeah. as well. Okay, wonder if we should show up at that and, and get some interviews. Yes, NetBSD developers, we're coming for you. You can't hide. Exactly. We know you're be now. Exactly. <laughs> Although that happens to be at the same time as the the BSD Vendor Summit. Although this one oh. in particular, this is an all BSD vendor summit. So okay, we combine okay. with the open BSD people. So we and can grab BSD, a bunch yes. of different BSDs. Exactly. There so all the vendors that will do anything with any BSD in one room, which I think will be uh, a good idea. Maybe we should uh, see if we can't turn the, the one at uh, BSD can into the same. Yeah, we should do more of those, mm-hmm. I think, because there's going to be a lot of common problems I think we're all facing mm-hmm. between all the different BSDs. Yeah. Uh, Oh. And I guess we could also talk a little bit about the schedule for the actual conference as yeah, well. Yeah, I was going to say, in addition to the registration, the schedule was posted along with, and that's just as important. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, uh, there's going to be a free BSD and NetBSD Dev Summit, which is occurring across the first two days. So that's great. And during that time, there's going to be some excellent tutorials being given. Of course, we have Kirk, George Neville Neal, Drew, a whole bunch more. I mean, if you want to yes. read uh, some off from the program list there, Alan, I didn't put them all in the notes. Yeah, but... Uh, I really I gotta watch the scheduling on that one because I've signed up to take uh, George Neville Neal's Dtrace uh, tutorial, so I mm, okay. I'll miss part of the uh, Dev Summit if it's the same day, but I don't know if it is. I'll let you know if you miss anything. Yeah. Good, awesome, um, great. So let's see who else we got. Chris Stapps is doing a, a secure BSD web application development in C. Yes, wow. so he's got uh, I think it's called KCGI or something. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. uh, a CGI container thing that can do capsicum. And so on. So that'll be really useful if you're into developing web applications. Okay. Well, yes. So in room one, uh, the first half of the day, it looks like it will be uh, Kirk doing his introduction to the FreeBSD operating system. And then uh, in more in the evening, uh, George Neville Neal will be doing his uh, detracing FreeBSD for DevOps and developers. Uh, mm-hmm. And ah, that's up against the FreeBSD Developer Summit. But it looks like yeah, it only overlaps a little bit. Missed yep. second half of the first day. Yep. Uh, and then on this <clears throat> second day, there will be more tutorials, including uh, continuing Kirk's uh, FreeBSD operating systems overview. And ah, the D-Trace actually runs in the evening of the second night as well. Uh, and then in room B, they'll be uh, connecting remote offices using SSH reverse tunneling, hmm. which is uh, quite handy, I'm sure. Kristaps uh, with the web development stuff. And then uh, Drew Levine and Benedict Richling will be giving, uh, getting started with the FreeBSD documentation and translation projects. So uh, if you're coming for Asia BSDCon, I'm sure you will be there by 6 p.m. or 4 p.m. Uh, the day before the conference starts. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, no matter how new of a user you are, uh, you could take this tutorial on getting involved in the... Uh, documentation or translation projects. Somebody's asking, where is this happening? Well, uh, Tokyo. Yes, this will be at the Tokyo University University of Science in Mm. uh, Tokyo. Uh, 
Yep. And uh, ah, there's the vendor summit, and then ah, BeehiveCon runs over top of the second day of the D trace thing. So I will. Uh, I have to miss the second half of George's class, I think. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so you were giving you were giving something at the BeehiveCon, right? Probably Talking about something or I not. I don't think I am specifically, but I'll definitely be there. Oh, you'll get roped in. Exactly. I'm sure I will talk about something. And uh, I I paid for half of the dinner that's part of uh, BeehiveCon, so (laughs) I'll show up at least to eat. That's right. Get your food you paid for. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, That's just the the tutorial. Exactly. We haven't even got to the conference yet. I found a typo in the schedule. Opening has too many ends in in it. (laughs) Oh, yes. I see that there. Uh, And then... We got a bunch of talks uh, starting, you know, 10 a.m. That's another nice thing, AGBSDCon. Realizes you probably were out late. Doesn't start till 10 a.m. Which is nice. I wish other conferences would take note of that. <laughs> Especially for us poor people who are traveling long distances. Yep. You're already jet lagged. You're up late. And that extra hour in the morning or two helps oh, a yes. lot. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm glad that my talk is not first thing in the morning, uh, but isn't mm-hmm. the last talk of the conference or anything like that. So sure. that helped a lot too. Get it out of the exactly. way. Exactly. Well, it's on the second day, but it is early enough that it'll be fine. Um, cool. So yeah, the first couple of talks coming up. We have uh, Cherry BSD. Uh, Brooks Davis will be talking about the work for basically uh, a version of BSD for a special processor that understands Capsicum and can basically implement it stronger because the processor is actually providing some of the protections. Uh, then uh, Mahai uh, Karabas will be talking about ATA emulation in Beehive so that you can uh, emulate older disks and, and run mm. legacy applications and so on. Uh, nice. And then Jörg uh, Sonnenberger will be talking about how to break long-term compatibility in NetBSD. So that one sounds so, interesting. Hmm, hard to do. <laughs> I don't know. Um, then uh, Camille uh, Zerkadia will be talking about FreeBSD test cluster automation. So that'll be good, especially, you know, we always want more testing and we need, it's a good place for people that uh, don't really consider themselves to be developers yet to get mm-hmm. uh, their start because you end up writing little scripts and stuff or just running the programs and, and figuring out why they don't work right. Uh, and it's a definitely a great place for those people that don't feel that they can be a developer yet uh, to get started. Sure. Uh, and then uh, Mikhail... Jeski will be talking about the mtree parsing and manipulation library uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, parsing the mtree is definitely interesting but having a manipulation library so that uh, since for example the compile and install uh, freebsd is not root to build things like a raspberry pi image um, use mtree stuff but the way they have to manipulate it is a little finicky uh, and having a library that could do that might make that work a lot better and deal with things like, you know, when you're trying to package base and using mtrees to find all the files, you get errors if the same file's in there twice. Uh, whereas having a library that can deal with that or find it when you add the second one, not when you try to compile it after you already have this mtree file, could be quite useful. Uh, and then uh, Mike uh, Belafurov will be talking about uh, implementation of the Zen PVHVM drivers on OpenBSD. Uh, nice. then, then after that's just the morning. Yes. We, we didn't hit lunch yeah. yet. Then then we'll have the awesome Age of BSDCon lunch. Also note they give you an hour and a half for lunch instead of only an hour. So it uh, also allows you to go out for lunch if you want. Yeah. Or but you really don't great great places to eat like yes. in walking distance. There there are, but 
the bento boxes are actually really good. Last year's they exploded. Not all of them. Cool. Only only That's the people cool. that that didn't follow the instructions because they wanted to see how the chemical reaction worked. Yes. Like Adrian was the only one who's caught on fire. It was fun yeah. though. Self-heating little lunchbox. Yes, it was pretty neat. Yes, we never had the self-heating ones before. That was awesome. Uh, but after lunch, there would be project update sessions. So each of the different projects will be uh, giving an update on how things have been going for them and so on. That'll be quite cool. And then uh, after that, uh, we'll have the Zen HVM light and uh, on FreeBSD. So this is uh, interesting new work that'll be going on in with uh, Zen as the uh, as hosting VMs using Zen on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. uh, and then FreeBSD-based high-density filers. So for uh, uh, Baptiste, we'll be talking about basically building machines for storage that will hold a lot of uh, data at once and uh, the work he's been doing on that uh, and then the bitrig people will be talking about bitrig ports so using bsd ports packages and so on for uncommon operating systems hmm. um, then uh, marius zaborski uh, will be talking about capsicum and casper uh, a fairy tale about solving security problems hmm. So that should be good. And then our friend uh, John Hickson will be talking about directory services on FreeNAS. So I imagine oh, yeah. that's uh, how to integrate with Active Directory or even maybe be a domain controller with FreeNAS. Sounds mm -hmm. very interesting. Uh, and then Alistair Crooks will be talking about new security models for NetBSD. Oh, interesting. Exactly. Uh, and then uh, Luigi Rizzo will be talking about TLEM, which is a new high-speed link emulation. So uh, we've uh, many of us have used DummyNet and, and love it for what it can do, but if you need to be able to emulate, say, 10 or 20 gigabit links, uh, DummyNet doesn't... Well, when, when you set caps in DummyNet, there's a hard limit at 2.4 gigabits a second <laughs> because it uses a, uh, a signed 32-bit counter or whatever. Uh, and so it just doesn't work faster than that. And so this is a, a new project to deal with that which seems really interesting. Okay. Then uh, Michael Dexter will be talking about uh, Disk CTL, a new permissively licensed uh, smart and raw data command utility framework. So replacing something like smart CTL and SmartMon tools, but also uh, a friendlier interface than the cam control for sending raw commands to a disk to get certain information or to change certain things. Uh, and, you know, uh, basically, if you want to be able to script uh, reading the output of smart ctl this is definitely an interesting tool the way to go because uh the, the output format in smart ctl is definitely designed for human consumption and not to be used by a script it's just too fiddly and all over the place and not deterministic uh and mm -hmm. so this new utility seems quite interesting and then uh hiroyuki uh, besho will be talking about uh, peripheral side uh, usb support for netbsd so I guess that's, that's uh, USB support on the device side rather than the computer side. This is all on the first day. Yes. So for those who aren't looking at the page, there's three separate tracks. Yeah. So when you're talking about a lot of these, you're going to have to choose which one you want to go to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, another highlight of HBSDCon is the banquet dinner, uh, which will be at the Arcadia Ishigawa this year. Is that the same place? I don't think so. Because yeah, last year was different, different than normal as well. Because mm -hmm. before that, we usually went okay. to that, that big tower or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah uh, just up the street from the conference. Yeah, uh, but last year we had it at hey. one, one of the hotels. New is good. I like new. Yes. 
Okay, so that's day one. Yes. And then after you get... Well, technically, that's day three. Yeah, yeah. Day one of the paper session. Yes. And then, yes, after uh, you maybe have gotten some sleep after staying out all night, uh, then, again, 10 a.m., because we're going to go easy on people. He loves us. Yes, exactly. We love you, (laughs) Hiroki. Ed Shouten will be talking about uh, Cloud ABI and the pure capability-based security for Unix. Uh, Then Daniel uh, uh, Lovasco will be talking about type-aware kernel virtual memory access. Hmm. Um, He had talked uh, about doing some of this for the debugger uh, last year at HBSDCon. It was very interesting. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to seeing that session uh, this year. And then uh, uh, Warren Block will be talking about improving the FreeBSD translation tools uh, and switching away from the old model of we do like an SVN copy of the documentation in English and then translate it and then have to incrementally update it and you know, the amount of work involved in maintaining the translations in FreeBSD is currently ridiculous. Uh, and so Warner, uh, Warren has worked with you, actually, to, to steal mm-hmm. all the ideas PCBSD had about this and get those Looks tools like working. They're going to be using PO files, get text PO files. Yep. And, and uh, maybe they'll do Poodle, too. I think that, that's the goal. Uh, that's the goal. I'll have to, I'll have to talk to them, see exactly what they landed on. Yeah. And so he'll be giving a talk about that. And uh, I think that'll be very interesting, especially uh, at a conference like HBSDCon. Sure. Uh, and then George Neville Neal will be presenting Through the Wire, Measurement and Improvement of the Software-Based IPsec Implementation. Uh, so right. how he sped up IPsec. So that one I'm sure will be quite popular. Uh, and then Henning Brower will be giving Running an ISP on OpenBSD. So I'm hmm. sure that will also be popular. Uh, and so I'm not expecting very many people to show up at my talk, which is booting from encrypted disks on FreeBSD. I'll go. <laughs> yes, I, I know there will be lots of I want of to hear that. <laughs> uh, but I, that, that's definitely a tough one. Uh, I wouldn't pick my talk out of those three. Right. <laughs> uh, luckily, you won't have to try to pick for the keynote, uh, which mm-hmm. also, luckily, is not first thing in the morning when you're not awake, but is yes, uh, after, lunch. after lunch on the second day. Uh, Steve Bourne will be talking about the early days of Unix and the lessons learned then. Oh, that ought to be a good one. Yes. Uh, and then immediately, uh, they also give him a 90-minute slot. Oh, yeah, okay. So that'll be extra awesome. Uh, then after a break, we go on to improving high bandwidth TLS in the FreeBSD kernel. So how Netflix is managing to send out 55 gigabits, or megabits, or 55, yeah, 55 gigabits per second of uh, TLS encrypted traffic out of a single processor machine. Hmm. Yeah. So That ought to be good. In, Indeed. And then uh, our friend of the show, Brian Callahan, will be talking about social BSD, a review of diversity and inclusivity uh, initiatives in the BSD community and imagining future pathways. Hmm. So how to get more people into the projects, which we all would like, right? Uh, And then uh, Antoine Jacoteau uh, will be talking about OpenBSD's RC.D. New changes happening. Yep. And then... uh, Kirk McCusick will be giving a brief history of the BSD fast file system. Uh, Kirk, story time with Kirk is always the most fun. Uh, sure. And then Zbigniew... Uh, the brief is still 45 minutes. Yes. <laughs> right, or more. Yes. Uh, well, if, if he tells you the whole history, the DVD is like four hours or something. He sells mm-hmm. a DVD with uh, some of the history recordings. It's awesome. Um, then uh, Zbigniew Bodek uh, will be talking about FreeBSD on the Cavium Thunderax system on a chip. So this is the ARM64 nice. stuff. So if you want to get caught up on what's going on there, check out that session. 
Uh, then the final two hours uh, will be the work in progress session uh, where anybody who's working on anything and wants to just talk about it for five minutes, uh, we'll just have a series of five minutes quick overviews of what everybody's doing. Uh, and it's a great way to just uh, keep informed on what lots of different people are working on. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff is definitely in the early stages where you wouldn't have heard of it before. Uh, and so uh, also at the conference, they'll be soliciting for people to just send an email with, you know, one or two slides or something. And then uh, I think George will compile those into one big slideshow and uh, just have the people come up one at a time and uh, talk for five minutes about what they've been working on. I'll probably do that. Exactly. I, I think I have one or two things I can squeeze in there as well. Yep. And then there'll be the uh, closing ceremony. And uh, it's not on the schedule here, but usually there's a standing dinner at the end. Uh, I don't know if that'll be there or not. Yeah, we'll see. Yep. Either way, you'll have no problem finding food after. Oh, yes. It's Japan. Uh, yeah. You know, I wish I could take it home with me. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, anyway, lots of good reasons for you to be there this year. Mm -hmm. I know it's far, but if you can make it out to Tokyo or you're close or whatever, try and make it there. Yes. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. Alan and I will both be there. And yeah. Gosh, that's less than two weeks from I now. I know. Uh, <laughs> so many people. Crazy. But anyway, make sure you get registered if you already were planning to go. Uh, registration is open now. So get signed up so they can start getting a head count. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, next up, we have uh, OpenBSD on AWS, an unexpected journey. We have a blog post from Anton Joko, who we just mentioned he's going to be giving a talk there. Mm -hmm. But this is actually a really cool one where he talks about the process of getting OpenBSD up and running in AWS. And uh, specifically, he starts with his process of creating the AMI from scratch, which ended up being not that bad, according to him. Which uh, starts with looks kind of something kind of like this, where he creates a loopback, mounts a raw image containing UFS file system, then extracts the OpenBSD base sets, which in this case are just regular tarballs and the kernel, etc. And then enables console output so that he could get a AWS EC2 get console output to work. Installs the bootloader and then uses some EC2 tools to, or EC2 tools to import the raw image into S3, convert it into a volume. Then he can snapshot it and create the AMI register it. Which uh, don't worry if that sounds like a lot and a little daunting. Uh, he has a nice script which automates most of that process as well, which is linked on the blog post. So if you'd like to just take some of the pain out of it, you can download his script and it'll do all those steps for you. He says uh, at that point though that was kind of the end of the end of where you could go before, but thanks to the recently landed DOM use support, which has uh, showed up in OpenBSD, mm -hmm. the final pieces of the puzzle have now fallen into place, which allows OpenBSD to function as a proper guest now with networking, which kind of important. Mm -hmm. So uh, next uh, next parts of the steps he had to go through here, he had detailed some of the process of injecting a public SSH key into the instance, so you can, of course, remote into it. And uh, in this case, he creates another script. We have an EC2 init script, which is created, also linked to uh, on GitHub in the uh, blog post here, which basically does the following. It sets the host name, installs a provided public SSH key to uh, root SSH authorized keys, uh, executes uh, user data if it starts with the uh, shebang, and then displays the host SSH fingerprints on the console, trying to match some of the functionality of Cloud Init. So he said, with that done, pretty much OpenBSD is AWS ready, or you're good to go. Um, he doesn't stop there, though. gives us a little bit of a brief walkthrough of setting up Nginx for the first time for new users. So if you've never used OpenBSD or don't understand how their package management works, this may come in handy. But if you've already done this before, I mean, you were good to go after you ran the init script and got your SSH mm -hmm. into the box. So uh, 
looks pretty awesome that that's all up and working. So uh, great, great job putting those scripts up, by the way. I know that mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier. It's not that these things are necessarily hard. It's just tedious and time-consuming to step through it all. So those scripts will definitely help you out. Okay, so next up, uh, mm-hmm. Summer of Code. So students and developers, you need to listen up. So it's time to start thinking about the Google Summer of Code again, which I know it seems like summer's a long way away. I know you said it's freezing rain there today, Alan. Yep. So it seems like forever, but on the other hand, Tokyo's in like less than two weeks, yep. and it's going by too stinking fast. So mm-hmm. it's time to start thinking about ideas, and FreeBSD has uh, been asking folks to update their uh, Summer of Code ideas page up on the wiki with new things. So first of all, there's already some good ones on the list, but there's some things that should be pruned. I saw that the, the Jelly Boot is still listed uh-huh. on there, so you can probably nuke that yep. now. But uh, it's time to start adding new ones before we get too deep or close to uh, the sign-up time. Yeah. Uh, some ideas. Yeah, and people need time to think about it. They have, we have to find mentors for this stuff. And you have to remember, you know, the students need to be able to start this immediately as soon as the summer starts. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we need all the ideas the on idea. there soon. Uh, I know right. uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but uh, at the Storage Summit, um, Matt Ahrens from OpenZFS had a, a list of ideas for... Uh, mm-hmm. projects that could actually be done by a student. Uh, whereas, oh, you know, the biggest thing to remember with these Summer of Code is that most of the students who are signing up have possibly never even used FreeBSD before. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you're mentoring, you have to think, you know, we need two mentors that actually have the time to help people through some of this initial stuff, like how to get SVN checked out and how to compile FreeBSD and mm-hmm. so on. But also that, you know, part of those 12 weeks is going to have to be getting up to speed, reading the existing code and figuring out where to put the new code, not, you know, putting things on here that would take uh, an existing FreeBSD developer six weeks to do really isn't sure. likely going to happen. <laughs> isn't helpful, yeah. Well, and part of this needs to be the mentoring side, right? Yes. Don't just throw proposals up there. If there's things you can think of specifically like, hey, I could mentor that or I could assist shepherding mm-hmm. this into the tree when it's done so the work doesn't just bit rot and get lost afterwards definitely start thinking about that now mm-hmm. and make sure your ideas are up there. I know I was going to say, you know, improving the Linux compat layer is always a good one for FreeBSD. Yep. So uh, maybe that should go on there. Um, but of course, this this is for other BSDs as well. It's not just FreeBSD that participates yep. in this. So uh, any other BSDs out there, you probably should start thinking about yours as well. And I'm sure you have wiki pages. If you have uh, links or something like that, uh, send it over to us. and We'll include it in next week's episode so we yes. can make sure we point people the direction if they want to do something on OpenBSD or Dragonfly, etc. Yeah, we basically want to get together as many uh, mentors and as many students as we can. So mm-hmm. That's right. But yeah, if you're uh, currently in post-secondary education and uh, want to work on something over the summer instead of having uh, some other job, then you should definitely check out Google Summer of Code. Okay. And kind of a related article here, if you're looking for something to work on, we have uh, John Sebastian over in the FreeBSD project has posted a nice, pretty detailed wiki page on how to get started with kernel hacking, specifically with an eye towards the DRM code that's been Mm -hmm. going on. I know a lot of people have asked in the past, you know, how do you contribute to that and how do you uh, get involved with hacking on the kernel and updating drivers? So with this guide, I think you have just enough detail now to get started. And, uh, of course, they're improving that. So if you see things on there that need to be added, let them know. And uh, any developers that want to get involved, uh, definitely check that out. Give them some feedback. But that's good. It's nice to see some other folks jumping on board. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing here is, you know, even I, as currently a FreeBSD developer, uh, basically don't know any of the stuff that's in this wiki here on, you know, how to actually work on uh, building the the Linux stuff and, and working on mm-hmm. or 
anything to do with drivers is all over my head. So it's nice that he actually put all those together so that, uh, you know, there are lots of people who are programmers but just are not familiar with the, the FreeBSD-specific yeah. parts or even are FreeBSD kernel developers and don't know how to find the, the stuff in the Linux code to work on porting things over. Maybe you haven't touched anything in that space before or whatever. So I think one of the targets, he has a list of some of them here, mm -hmm. is uh, they should start by moving to the Linux KPI before doing anything else as well. Mm -hmm. So that could be uh, useful. I guess that will reduce the work bringing in future updates of DRM code. And then he has some links to some different threads on the mailing list where people are discussing different parts of this as well. So yep. check it out if that's something you want to get involved with. Who knows, maybe a summer code student wants to make that part of what they uh, do. Mm -hmm. Let me take a look at this. That will get you started. Okay, so it's time for our first ad this week, Alan. So we're going to start with the uh, IX Systems, yes. which is going to be ixsystems.com slash bsdnow, where you want to go get in touch with those folks. And, of course, let them know that you heard about them here on BSD Now, yep. and they will treat you right. I think uh, we saw some pictures at Twitter just the other yes. day, Alan. So actually, <laughs> yesterday morning, I was actually at IX's office uh, for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, after touring around and meeting people and actually ended up signing some uh, copies of the ZFS book and giving one away, uh, nice. here's a picture. I guess you can't really see behind us there, but that's the production floor uh, at IX Systems. So they have a uh, not small assembly line of uh, they're building a bunch of the FreeNAS minis on there. Uh, I even saw a prototype of an upcoming bigger version of the mini that holds eight hard drives. Ooh, are we supposed to be teasing that yet? I, I don't think, think so. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I guess if you've let the cat out of the bag, <laughs> what we may be doing, I've heard rumor we may do a little unboxing of that Ooh. here live or something. Nice. So stay tuned. Uh, yes. Hey. Uh, so uh, <laughs> after this, uh, I actually uh, put on the lab coat. I'd always wondered why, why they have to wear these. Uh, you know, every time you see the picture of the people on the production floor, they're wearing these lab coats and i was like is it just a uniform thing but they're actually fancy special jackets that have like the electrostatic discharge netting in them and stuff and uh you know there's big warning tape and it's like you can't go beyond this area without one of those yeah. shirts and it's like oh static cool. electricity turns out is a real problem yeah uh and so they have fancy uh benches they work on to ground everything and uh yeah it was I was impressed with the uh, the attention to detail on that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I can yeah, kind of imagine some other computer places where they're putting it together where it's just, you know, on a bench. Mm -hmm. And the people in their street clothes or whatever. Uh, but then we got to see uh, a pair of these new servers here. This is um, the new 90-drive JBOD array. So basically it's a, a 2U unit that you fill with 90 hard drives. Uh, so the hard drives go in standing up, uh, with the obviously with the data and power connectors at the bottom, and you just fill it. It, it just opens kind of like a cupboard <laughs> or something, and you just fill it from the top with 90 hard drives. Uh, and then the back Dang. is just uh, all power supplies and fans. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. you just uh, connect it with your uh, SAS connectors back to your storage head, and uh, it's just a giant shelf full of disks. Yeah, uh, maybe we should unbox one of those. Too. Yeah. Send one over. <laughs> yeah, send one over. So we got a picture here of uh, one of them where it's full. Uh, so you can see slightly different drive carriers because they don't have the venting on the front because uh, the air runs along the sides of the hard drives instead of top to bottom. Uh, but those are nice. And then yeah, so the picture, uh, this picture here, where you can see that in the all the drives in this machine, and they have the uh, the funny 
tweet here. <laughs> Quick math question. What's 90 times 8 terabytes? Uh, and how do you configure that, by the way? When you're setting up your Z pool, what would be your recommended way? I would say probably a, Z, uh, a, a VDEV of each of the rows or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's six uh, rows of, of the drives, uh, of like 15 drives or whatever. And so I would say each one of six, maybe. As do six VDEVs for each one. It also depends. You know, if you're doing mirrors, you're just doing two or three drives at a time. Sure. Uh, or you can go wider stripes if you need more storage or narrower stripes if you need more performance and so on. And this is the kind of thing that you can ask IX and, and they will be like, well. They would probably have a quick answer. Yeah, it's a, like, well, oh, they wouldn't this. have a quick answer. They would have a bunch of questions in order to give sure. you the right answer. It's like, That's well, right. are you storing giant video files or are you storing like VMs with tiny block sizes? You know, and uh, how much performance do you need guaranteed out of this? But then... Uh, That's what makes IX awesome, mm -hmm. because they're not just about selling you that particular piece of hardware, but how can you squeeze every last ounce of performance out of it? Like, yep. now they're getting into the nitty-gritty of the configuration on the software side yep. you know, to make sure it does what it's supposed to do. Yep, and then, yeah, in this picture, you can see they've actually... Uh, they're in the process of taking all the drives out. So they got all the drives out of this first one, but just out of the frame here, there's a second one where there's actually a guy taking all the hard drives out of it after the picture. Uh, it was like, yeah, we have to rack this now. Uh, and so before we try to lift it, <laughs> we're going to take all the hard drives out because they're heavy. Yeah. <laughs> when you, you know, a couple hard drives in the machine, it's like, oh, it doesn't make a difference. But with 90, uh, it's, it's going to make a significant difference in the weight. Plus, when I ship you a server, they always ship it with the drives in a separate box because uh, right. they pad the drives like nothing is ever going to damage one of the drives during shipping. Mm -hmm. You know, you could, you could play soccer with a box of hard drives and the drives would be fine. <laughs> You know, I was always impressed with that, tracking. You don't get that level of quality elsewhere, folks. No. So definitely talk to the guys over at IX Systems, and that's ixsystems.com slash BSD now. And uh, anyway, as we have more cool pictures like that, mm -hmm. we will, of course, uh, bring them to you on future episodes. But glad you got to go visit the office. That's neat. Yes, now. it was nice to uh, meet a couple of the people I'd only talked to over email, like uh, my, my new sales rep that I've been uh, dealing with lately and buying all the machines. It was nice mm -hmm. to finally meet him in person. And oh, that's great. Lots of nice people. Well, Oh, and they, oh, cool. they gave me this nice new shirt. Oh, yes, that's right. You got the, the new, new logo, logo shirt. and everything. Yep. Well, of course, you should have your own IX story. So mm -hmm. uh, get in touch with them and start your own story today. And then tell us because we like to hear those. Yes. And yeah, if you have a story, remember, go to ixsystems.com slash mission complete and uh, write in the story and uh, you can win a prize once a month. Okay, well, we're back, and we're ready to uh, do something a little different today. We're not doing a regular interview because uh, we have Alan back from the yes. Storage Summit, and that's like an interview and a half of him just telling us about all the cool stuff that happened there. Yes. So uh, we're going to do that today. So without further ado, Alan, tell us, and since I didn't get to go and I'm all jealous, then make me even more jealous now. Yeah, uh, so I'll just kind of recap uh, some of the uh, groups that I was in and notes from some of the other ones. Uh, I don't have all the details on every one of the working groups because some of them are happening at the same time and I can't be in two places at once as much as I would mm. really like that. <laughs> sure. Uh, but yeah, so earlier this week, uh, it was on Monday, we had uh, a number of developers from FreeBSD as well as uh, various vendors that either use FreeBSD, so there's quite a few companies that were you know using FreeBSD in their product or whatever, or uh, vendors that make a product that they use with FreeBSD. I know uh, Seagate sent four people to talk about SMR drives and NVMe and all the other interesting stuff. Uh, nice. 
we all met up at uh, for a storage summit and to discuss the future of all the different technologies relating to storage on FreeBSD. Uh, so the summit was uh, co-located with Usenix Fast with the File Systems and Storage Technology Conference. So, you know, uh, that's part of how we managed to have so many people there uh, was a lot of the people were coming to that conference anyway. So just doing it on the Monday allowed them to uh, to come, you know, and while they're already traveling for this other conference. So we got more people that, uh, you know, a lot of people from like Colorado that wouldn't have bothered to come down to uh, uh, California for a day. Uh, but we're mm -hmm. coming for the week, and we could just steal one of their days from them. And yes, Groff, sure. the BSD goat, was there as well. Although I don't know if anybody took any pictures of Groff to I show. Didn't see any float around Twitter. Maybe no, we were all busy working the whole time. There wasn't yeah, that, as much time for that. Though. Yeah. Uh, so the summit was sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation and FlightAware, which is a mm -hmm. company that uses FreeBSD. Um, so after uh, a short introduction and uh, Justin Gibbs kind of explaining how he. Uh, wanted this to work and how this is the first one and we wanted uh, discussions about what was good about it and what wasn't and uh, would people rather in the future see two-day versions of this half as often or more one-day versions throughout the year and you know there's obvious advantages to both different locate having more different locations means we maybe get more people but then again you know uh, it's not worth the travel to do it for only one day uh, and so then you maybe get fewer people and anyway uh, so we talked about that. And then after that, there was the network synergy panel. Uh, so not, uh, you know, when you hear networking synergy at a big corporate style conference, you know, it's not the same thing in this sure. one. It was literally, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, the networking people have spent a lot of time working on optimizing the stack, make modernizing FreeBSD, and in general dealing with, we have multiple processors and we need to use all of them in order to get the maximum performance out of the network and so on. Uh, and so they were sharing lessons they've learned and uh, techniques and tricks they've applied and seeing if there's some of those that could apply to storage uh, and in general seeing what we can do to make storage and networking work together faster so we can get the bits off the disk and out of the network as quick as possible. Uh, so a lot of time was spent discussing issues like multi-queue support. Uh, you know, in general, a hard drive can only really do one thing at a time. Uh, newer drives have, you know, native command queue where the drive can take a list of the things and maybe reorder them internally and then do them all. But in general, a regular hard drive can only do one thing at a time. And so the mm -hmm. interface is designed to only really do one thing at a time. So even when you're using an SSD, it can do those things fast enough that it can be seen quite fast. But in general, an SSD could be doing more than one thing at a time if the interface to it could give it that list. And that's one of the big things behind NVMe or uh, non-volatile memory express, which is instead of having an SSD pretending to be a hard drive, we have an SSD that is a PCI express card and uses not, you know, a SATA or SAS interface, but its own special interface designed for the capabilities of flash, which supports multiple queues. So you can queue up, you know, 31 commands to happen at once and get notification when they're done and get a lot more work done. So with the exact same flash, the version of it pretends to be a hard drive can get like 600 megabytes a second of read. Uh, and the version that's exposed over PCIe can do 2.8 gigabytes per second mm. because you can just do more work at once. Uh, you know, sure. you, there's flashes divided up and we just make them all work at once. And so we talked about that and uh, 
you know, there's talk about uh, a multi-queue version of some of the host controller drivers, like the the disk controllers. Some of them uh, will be able to send multiple commands down into the driver, uh, and then the driver will dispatch those across the different disks so that we can try to keep every disk in the machine busy at once to do work. And uh, lots of other interesting stuff there. Uh, and then uh, we talked about CPU scheduling and a uh, little bit about uh, you know, in networking, we have technologies like large receive offload and TCP segmentation offload, where, you know, instead of having the operating system break up your big message you're trying to send or the file you're trying to send into 1500 byte chunks for the network card, the network card supports giving it 64K at a time, and the network card will break it up into little chunks for you. Uh, because each time you talk to the network card, it's uh, some extra work. So doing one round trip instead of, you know, uh, 30 or whatever makes a big difference and it's like well could we maybe have something like that for uh, storage controllers and then there are more things like the TCP offload engines where you can actually offload even more of the work to the, the disk or the the network card and uh, you know is there a place in storage for some of these interesting techniques oh. and talked about all that uh, and then uh, we had a short break uh, with an interesting hallway track uh, and then when we came back, we broke up into our working groups. Oh, I bet those were fun. Mm -hmm. Was it mostly FreeBSD folks there or a lot of other BSDs and, or Linux even? Um, it was mostly FreeBSD people uh, and FreeBSD okay. vendors, but there were uh, quite a few, like I said, there were four people from Seagate. Uh, one of them, the guy that was leading the SMR session, uh, and during his day job is working on uh, patches for EXT4 for Linux to make it support SMR. But in his spare time, he's actually been a FreeBSD user since FreeBSD 7. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about my attempts to convince him to start contributing <laughs> patches. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, if you're already doing it for one file system. Yeah. Well, uh, in particular, uh, most of his patches were actually documentation for IPFW. Hmm, okay. And, and for setting up his router and so on. Anyway, so the working group, the first one was uh, CAM scheduling and uh, locking and trying to revamp that. Basically, the CAM subsystem is uh, quite a few years old now uh, and uh, could be modernized to do some better stuff. Uh, there was quite a bit of discussion about that and some action items, uh, but they didn't write them down in the wiki, so I don't actually have the list of what they talked about, which is uh, unfortunate, but hopefully that will show up on the wiki soon because I'm sure. sure somebody took notes or can actually make some notes. Um, the second working group was on user space storage stacks. Uh, and so uh, one of the user space storage stacks that they talked about was called disk map. So it's basically like NetMap, but for disks. So uh, if you remember, NetMap is a way to basically detach uh, the network drive or the network device from the kernel and hook it up to user land. So your application just talks directly to the NIC and doesn't have to go through the kernel. Uh, it's very useful if you want to, you know, have make a traffic generator that's just going to send 10 gigabits out of the network card as fast as possible and a couple other things like that. Uh, so disk map would allow your application to talk directly to the disk uh, and could allow you to make an application that's especially optimized for the type of disk you're using or something. And might also be interesting for things like SMR if you want your application to actually be aware of the zones and, and kind of get rid of some of the abstraction uh, and, and deal with the disk directly. Uh, so, uh, Ilias uh, Marinos was the uh, 
uh, is working on disk map at Cambridge University. And so if you were in that working group, he kind of described a little bit more about how it is, what it is and how it works. And then the uh, design decisions uh, were talked about and uh, specifically how to deal with memory management. Because anytime you're doing some kind of IO map, like NetMap or this, it's how do you manage the memory you're going to allocate for this so that you can be as fast as possible and move the data as quickly as possible and avoid copying the data if you don't have to and so on. Uh, and then they came up with a list of action items or things they need to do. Uh, you know, now that the summit, after they've talked about all this stuff at the summit, they have a list of things that people uh, that after the summit can work on to, to achieve the goals they set during the summit. Um, so then they discussed with Luigi the idea of code merges and trying to make uh, NetMap and DiskMap share as much code as possible so that both sides benefit from all the improvements. Uh, then there's a talk about a uh, need for a reset path API. Um, you know, if the disk moves or, or you know, you want to stop disk mapping a device and so on. Then they talked about uh, kernel buffer mapping for reliability so that make sure that, you know, uh, they're going to be the contiguous space you need and all that for memory in the kernel. Uh, and then support for other interfaces. Uh, you know, I think right now it only supports one specific interface and we want, you know, SAS and SCSI and so on. And maybe exposing disk map as a, a device that looks like a normal SATA device so that you can do stuff with it. And then also uh, adapting the geom layer to understand disk map. Hmm. Or it might actually be possible to have Geom have a, a disk map mode or whatever so that you can replace your regular Geom instead of going through the kernel. We'll use disk map to go directly to the disk. Could be interesting. Uh, this other next group was the adapting to new storage technologies. Uh, so this group uh, was led by Adrian Palmer from Seagate. Uh, and they were talking mostly about SMR, but also were interested in talking about uh, persistent memory like NVDIMMs and so on and anything of that type. Uh, I think this was the most organized of the groups. Uh, like ahead of time, they had all these different agendas and so on on the wiki. So for session one, they plan to talk about device identification and structural requirements. So looking at uh, how the device tells the OS that it's zoned SMR drive, right? These are the host-aware drives. So the operating system actually gets told by the device hey, I'm an SMR drive, I have zones of this this many of this type, mm -hmm. of this size, uh, and you know each one has different requirements, uh, and the needs for changes in the operating system to support the, these structures, uh, you know, what you have to do to get the IO ordering guarantees, uh, how you know, most of the regular SMR zones are forward write only, so you can't, mm -hmm. you, the head moves forward as you write more and more data, but you can never go backwards. Uh, sure. except for when you take a whole block, erase it, and start at the beginning again. Uh, some of the new sounds commands. Like, sounds like the OS can need to learn a lot more about how the drive works yeah. and manage that now. Exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and how the drive exposes that to the OS so it can learn mm -hmm. about it and so on. Uh, and we talked about um, the uh, geom layers for that, right? Because geom is going to have to learn about each of those different zones and how they are, and uh, especially how that works with RAID. Like if you're doing a typical RAID 5, you know, 4 plus 1 drives, um, if each of those drives is SMR and has a 256 megabyte zone, uh, logically you've actually just created a 1 gigabyte zone because you can't go backwards in any of those four zones. And so you basically logically have created this one big zone, and so Geom will have to understand that as well. 
Uh, and then, you know, also looking at digging into CAM and what it'll have to learn. And, uh, you know, the whole requirement is that solutions for this will have to be fast and have as few possible code paths uh, so that, you know, we reduce complexity and make sure that we don't introduce errors and, you know, nobody wants their disk to write to the wrong mm -hmm. spot or erase the wrong thing or not copy something. Uh, then they had the results of the first session. They said a relatively small audience. Uh, they talked about the zone characteristics, how it's used with various workloads, and, uh, you know, how they project how the drives will advance over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, then session two, they talked about uh, information dissemination and consumption, uh, where and how this information from the report zones command will be gathered, stored, combined, and used, and uh, how we'll have user-based storage and multi-volume management, like, like the RAID stuff. Uh, and, you know, will CAM store this data or will be in Geom? How frequently will this need to be queried and updated and verified and so on? Uh, and then they merged with the ZFS working group to actually talk about SMR on ZFS. Hmm. Uh, and they came up with uh, an idea that could be implemented uh, using a circular buffer zone. Uh, you know, as we were talking about SMR on ZFS, uh, Matt Ahrens came up with an idea of how, uh, you know, so you have these zones and you can only write forward, but we've erased, you know, a bunch of chunks in that. And now the typical thing to do in an SMR would be copy all that data and condense it down into the beginning of a new zone, right? And then write after it. But in ZFS, you can't just go moving the data because you mm -hmm. change its location. You have to update its checks, uh, pointers and then its checksum and then all the way up the whole tree of all the metadata. It's expensive. And it's very expensive. So Matt Aaron's thought, well, if we added a layer of abstraction, as long as we left the block in the same offset in the zone, we could just update which zone it was using. So we'd copy the old data to the new zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and write the first bit, and then as soon as we counter uh, an empty space, we'd write new files there. And then mm -hmm. when we hit the end of the empty space, we would write the next old file until we hit another empty space and then write new stuff and refill that zone. And once it's done, we can erase the old zone. Uh, mm. And then just maintain the mapping that what was before in zone 10 is now in zone 42. Uh, but maintaining the offsets. Uh, and then the Seagate guy, just kind of, one of the Seagate guys was just kind of <laughs> struck by that for a second. And then it's like, yeah, actually, we're proposing a command to do that in the drive because it's the best way. <laughs> it's like Matt Aaron's just thought of this off the top of his head. <laughs> just off top of his head. Like, yep. Yeah. He's like, that took us three weeks of meetings to figure out. <laughs> yeah, probably longer than that. But hopefully oh, yeah. uh, that will help them uh, make that a, a new kind of uh, SMR zone. Hmm, so, right. And then the fourth group was uh, ZFS. So uh, during the first ah. uh, session for ZFS, we discussed how to improve dedupe. Um, so, you know, the first thing that came up was uh, this idea of the dedupe throttle, uh, which uh, had been presented uh, at the ZFS Developer Summit last November. And so basically, you know, because if the DDE gets too big, it gets moved, it has, you have to go to disk every time you do a write and read that mm -hmm. part of the DDT, and you basically performance just falls right off a cliff. Sure. Um, and so to prevent that, we'd say, you know, once the DTD gets such a size that it, you know, it's going to eventually run out of memory, uh, we'll just stop deduping things. And while that, while that works, you basically, you get all the benefit on the early blocks and all your newer blocks don't get any benefit. And so that doesn't really help that much. Um, so 
uh, Matt Aaron's had this alternative idea uh, that he's actually apparently already prototyped. Um, right. So when the DDT reaches the max size that we've set, uh, when you add a new entry, instead of just not deduping it, what it will do is go through the DDT and find some other entry that's only been used once, so some block that's not actually deduped, and kick it out of the DDT and put the new block in, even though that new block likely uh, at this point is only going to have one entry as well. But sure. basically, you find something that was not deduped before, and has been there a while, so you kick it out uh, and put in this new block. Uh, and then right. when you go to free a block, or to see if you can free a block, you look it up in the DDT. If it's not there, you know that it only ever had one copy, so you can just delete it. Mm. Or if you do find it in the DDT, then you know that it, you know, it says it's got X copies. You drop that number down by one and don't get rid of the data because it's still in use. So with this... Uh, blocks that have been laying around for a long time and have not gotten deduped, have never seen a second copy, will fall out of the DDT to make room for new blocks. Where, you know, if you're running a whole bunch of VMs on it and you install the same Windows update on all the Windows VMs, all the different copies of that block are likely going to show up fairly close together. Right? Because they've been written by all these VMs around the same time. So those will sure. still get deduped, even though you've hit the limit on the size of your dedupe table. So just each time you go to insert something and you're at the limit, you just find some old entry that's not giving sure. you any benefit and kick it out to make room for the so new one. Would it possibly get full again, though, over time, like where things are all giving dedupe benefit? And, well, and you have to make a decision of which one I guess to evict, just the lowest? Uh, well, no, because you can't evict it if it has more than one reference. Sure. Because then when you go, if, if you delete one of the two copies, it will yeah. erase the data, and then your second copy is like, ah! So you potentially could still get full and need a cap. But, but yeah, it would still have the cap. And when okay. it, it's just, I guess, if you ran it out of... You more room. Yeah, if you ran out of single entries in your dedupe table, then you really, really should just get more RAM. Yeah, yeah, at that point, it's like, I'm yeah. sorry, you don't meet the minimum hardware requirements. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'm guessing, yeah, it would just fall back to stop deduping, but we give you the potential to at least still get some of the benefit of dedupe uh, even when you... It's less wasteful, yes. is what it sounds like. Yeah. So, okay. But this led into uh, Matt Aaron's even better idea. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> so the main problem with dedupe is that even when it's working, right when you haven't fallen off the cliff because your DDT is full or has overflown your memory, uh, every time you write a new block... You have to look for it in the DDT. If it's not there, add it. But if it is there, you have to update the entry with, you know, saying there's more copies of it now. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're doing all this work every time you write. Sure. Um, so his idea was to replace the DDT, uh, which in memory is taking up all the space, with just an in-memory hash table of, you know, the hash and the number of references. Um, and then instead of keeping this DDT, we would just have a log that would say, you know, this file went up by one, or this block went down by one, mm -hmm. this block went up by one, that same block went up by one again, and went up by one again, or whatever. Uh, and then once that log gets to twice some arbitrary size of how big we want it to be, it would just get condensed, and right, we would like look through and be like, oh, well, it went up by one, and then another one, and one, so it was at three, and then went down by one, so we'll just write it in as it is at two. Too, uh, and then when you reimport the pool at boot time or whatever, it would just replay the log to recreate the hash table to the same state. Hmm. Um, and then 
this would lower the memory footprint of the DDT and RAM because you wouldn't have to keep as much information. Sure. And uh, also help with uh, the... Uh, Speed up all your write options. Yeah, it, it, would, it wouldn't take as long every time it's time to write stuff to the disk. Hmm, okay. Sorry. Um, so that seems like an interesting idea as well. Uh, and then there was the discussion of uh, using a dedicated device for the DDT or the dedupe table, uh, mm -hmm. either by putting it on an SSD. Uh, and so there was some work from Nexenta for that, although it's not open source yet. Uh, sure. And so there was talk about you know using the OpenZFS developer list to be like, hey, we want to work on this. How far are you guys? You want to share kind of thing? Uh, or there's a more advanced version. Uh, Intel has been working on a system called Metadata Classes, where you can specify as a property of a VDEV what type of information you store in that VDEV. And sure. so dedupe table could be one type that might be stored on a disk. Or you can say, this one SSD will store the dedupe table uh, and these pool-wide metadata. And then this other SSD or NVMe will store just file metadata. And then only the spinning hard drives will store actual file data mm -hmm. and things like that. Hmm. So that uh, is interesting. Uh, sure. And hopefully, you know, maybe one of those two could be used for that as well. Because I think, you know, for dedupe, maybe an NVMe being so fast, it's uh, quite useful. Uh, and then we moved on to talking about uh, erasing files and secure delete and stuff. Uh, like yeah. a couple of weeks on the show, actually, our producer up. wrote in and was like, hey, so, you know, if, if you're the lawyer's office and you have these emails and you have to be able to say, we definitely deleted that email uh how do we do that and so you know uh just overwriting the sectors with uh zeros or a pattern or whatever like you would normally do uh on a hard drive that might not actually be good enough because ssds when you you know even though you say write to block you know 1001 uh inside the ssd it might be like well you know, you were not really going to do that. The the block at one thousand that was back in one thousand one is getting pretty worn out. So I'm actually going to write your new your zeros that you're writing over to this other sector, mm -hmm. or you know, some of them will actually even use compression to try to give themselves more space. And so writing all zeros will get compressed down to very little and stored sure. somewhere else. And so you can't actually guarantee that that stuff has been deleted. Um, and so um, some drives have a you know secure delete or secure erase command. And it's uh, so we talked a little bit about how maybe the trim support uh, could be used to issue that command and say, you know, for this data set, we know that it's contains sensitive data. And we want to make sure when we erase, when we actually free a block, that it gets properly destroyed by the hard drive. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, but for other cases and for say spinning hard drives where it might work or even ssds if you overwrite a lot maybe it'll clean up most of it and you know when the ssd does relocate the flash internally where it's actually backing you know a certain lba at that point it shouldn't be possible to get the data from the lba it used to because it's not using it or even if it remaps something else there it would usually only do that as a write and would overwrite the old data so maybe it'd be good enough. Oh, so it's not good enough for, you know, strict security, but it's good enough maybe for most of the time. Um, but ZFS, uh, Delphix has been working on ZFS and specifically has a feature called Eager Zero. So uh, when they have VMs up on Amazon 
or some other clouds where they have like a an EBS volume. Basically, when you buy storage from Amazon, it's backed by thin provision disk, right? So you buy a terabyte, but if you don't use any of it, it doesn't take up any of their space. Sure. Uh, and then every time you write to a block you've never written to before, um, it goes and has to find a place to put that somewhere in Amazon's storage cloud, right? Because mm -hmm. you're not actually... When you buy an EBS phone, yeah, so it's allocated on demand. And so that means the first time you write to each sector that you've never written to before, it's slower. So the, uh, some uh, intern, a student, uh, basically a, a student project at uh, Delphix was to make this eager zero command that would kind of like a scrub. When you create a pool and, and mark it as being like on Amazon or whatever, it goes through in the background in a way that you can pause or cancel and writes zeros to every sector that's not been used yet. So just after you start up the VM, you can start this little process and it'll go through and, and touch every block so that Amazon will do the provisioning then. Uh, so that, A, you can still use the VM right away, unlike a solution where you write all zeros before you start. Uh, but, you know, within a couple of hours, no matter where you end up writing, it's, not, it's going to be the, the, the good speed because it's already been allocated, not this arbitrarily slow speed of the sure Amazon allocated. would love that, right? <laughs> yes. Everyone's eating up all the space now. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden our thin provision volumes are not thin provision. How long before they're like, you're not allowed to use that. Or yeah. You have to pay extra for it. <laughs> anyway, um, but that could be reused uh, to make some kind of periodic operation that would just go through all the space that's marked as free in ZFS and write over it with zeros. So you'd be able to get rid of all the data in the Slack space in a ZFS pool. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after you erase that email, uh, as long as you've gotten rid of the snapshot so that the old block isn't in use, this would go through and write over it with zeros. And, you know, if you just set that up in a cron tab to run every Sunday or whatever, you know that any old data is definitely been overwritten. Mm -hmm. But then again, you know, with SSDs, maybe that's not good enough. Maybe not. Uh, but some drives don't implement the secure erase, and some of them, you know, just say that they do and don't actually do anything or just put it on a list of ones is like if you, if somebody asks for this make sure you don't give them the data give them all zeros uh, you know if you have enterprise ssds they're usually slightly better behaved or at least they document exactly what they do but uh you know it's definitely an area for more investigation uh and then we talked about the problems with uh freebsd's trim implementation uh one of the interesting ones i didn't know is that uh so in in freebsd's trim in order to make sure we don't trim a block and then immediately overwrite it which basically does a lot of work on the SSD for no reason. Um, we keep the list of trimmed blocks for a certain amount of time, and then only if that those blocks have not been reused do we actually send the trim command to the disk. Mm -hmm. If the machine reboots or the power goes out or whatever before that timeout happens, those blocks never actually get trimmed. Mm. Uh, which, you know, in, if you're trying to use it for a secure raise, that's definitely not good enough. Sure. Um, the new implementation... Uh, in ZFS for trim, that's uh, not quite finished yet, but is basically uh, a universal way to do trim, whereas the one current trim support in FreeBSD is specific to FreeBSD. Um, that one keeps track of the list in the uh, ZFS metadata so that it's still there even if the machine sure. reboots or whatever. Uh, and so there was persistent. Yeah, and so there was talk about how to actually import that on FreeBSD and and make sure it works with FreeBSD. Uh, and so on. So there's some work on the the trim project as well. Then we talked about 
uh, AD or ABD or ARC buff data. Uh, so currently in ZFS, when you have data in the ARC, it is allocated contiguously, right? So there's a big chunk of memory in a row for that each block. Uh, and, you know, the blocks can get pretty big, especially, you know, now you're allowed to have blocks up to a megabyte and, you know, soon it'll be up to like 16 megabytes. And asking the kernel to give you a chunk of memory with nothing else, you know, as the system's used a lot, right, you allocate and deallocate and all of a sudden you have these little dots of stuff spread all over the place and there's no chunk as big as you actually want. Um, and so as part of the work with the compressed arc, where data will be kept compressed in RAM, uh, if it was compressed on disk, there's basically, um, in that, what it does is we keep all the blocks off the disk compressed in memory if they were already compressed. And then when someone tries to use them, we uncompress it and put it in these contiguous blocks. And we have this buffer of these contiguous blocks that we use. Um, so the idea is to keep doing that so the application gets handed this continuous contiguous chunk of memory. But for the blocks where we keep the compressed data, those will be made up of scatter-gather lists of individual pages. So it just grabs a bunch of chunks of 4K of memory that it can find and puts all the compressed data in that. And then only when you're actually using it will it grab all those and stick them into one of this fixed number of contiguous buffers it creates uh, during, like, when you boot the system, basically, uh, when the memory isn't fragmented yet. So it'll create, uh, it's tunable, but the default is like 100 megabytes of contiguous buffers. Sure. And that's all the contiguous memory you need. The rest of it can be made up of little pieces scattered all over the place. And it will just put them back together when it needs to. Uh, and so this should uh, help a lot in a couple of different cases. Uh, but they explained it in more detail than I can off the top of my head. Sure. Uh, but this definitely looks interesting and uh, in the talk they have with John Baldwin about it, it sounds like it will not be hard to do on FreeBSD. Nice. Uh, and then for the second session, we combined with the SMR group uh, and talked with them. And uh, specifically, I learned a couple of things. Um, many of the SMR drives, while they have these 256 megabyte zones where you can only write past where you've written before, you can't ever go backwards, uh, they do have a couple of zones for random I.O. that work like a typical hard drive. Uh, although, by the sounds of it, they might be smaller because you, know, you can't pack them as densely when you're not overlapping. Uh, so that solves the problem I had thought of off the top of my head was in ZFS, the f uh, each drive has four labels on it uh, that are 256 kilobytes each. And most of that is this ring of Uber blocks. And when the system boots up, it goes through and finds the highest numbered Uber block where the checksum is right. And that's how it you know, brings up the system exactly um, how it was before it shut down. Right? So that every operation either completes or doesn't complete. So if there's one that's sure. in the middle of being written when the power goes out, you go back to the last one that was fully working. Um, and basically, it overwrites that every transaction group in place. Uh, well, there's a ring buffer, but anyway. Um, those are in a very specific place on the disk, right? Uh, the first label 0 and 1 are the first 512 bytes of the disk, and labels 3 and 4 are the last 512 bytes of the disk. And so those specific sectors get overwritten constantly, and that sure. wouldn't work with an SMR drive. Um, so 
uh, now that we know most SMR drives have in the low range a couple of these random zones, uh, mm -hmm. we might decide that those four labels should all be stored at, say, the beginning of each of the four random zones. Or maybe if there's not four random zones, the beginning and end of the first two random zones. Um, and then we did ask the question, you know, uh, what about the end of the drive? Because even GPT writes to the very last sector of the disk. Apparently, there's like a, a, a runt zone at the end where, you know, the drive net isn't necessarily divisible into even chunks of 256 megabytes. So there's a small zone, and uh, it's not clear how small it is and if it would be big enough to hold the extra 512K of stuff from ZFS. But it turns out ZFS might have to learn to keep its metadata in specific zones or something instead of just specific LBAs um, when working with SMR drives. It, but in general, ZFS will be easier to make work with SMR than some other drives or other file systems because ZFS never does overwrite something in place other than those labels. And right, so it always writing forward. And so sure. if we just taught the Metaslabs, you know, to do that as much as possible and and if the drive can do the garbage collection for us, that's great. If it can't, then maybe we can have some indirection with the swapping out which zone it's using or something. Hmm. But uh, that was very enlightening getting to talk to people that, you know, from the hard drive manufacturer that actually know a lot about SMR uh, sure. and how to deal with some of these things. Uh, and then what else did we talk about there? Um, yes. Uh, we talked a bit about NUMA, more about uh, SMR and the different types of zones. Uh, so on top of the random zone, there's the sequential write required zone, which are append only. And then there's the sequential write preferred zone, which basically does the copying for you. As Like as you write, you can say, all right, it's going to keep this data and then write the new data and then keep this data, kind of like we described earlier. Uh, and then possibly the circular buffer zone, which uh, will let you rewrite the to the same LBAs. Uh, which is kind of what ZFS would need. Um, oh, and then it brought up some interesting questions about SMR drives and ZFS. Uh, what about when you swap to an, a newer, bigger drive? So what happens if you had regular drives and you swap to SMR drives? Hmm. Then that, that one might actually not be possible or something. And then, but even if you have SMR drives, what if... A couple of years from now, you swap it up for a bigger SMR drive, and it uses, say, you know, one gigabyte zones instead of 256 megabyte zones. Uh, maybe as long as there are always powers of two, uh, you can just say, yeah. all right, this one zone, is, uh, these four zones off the old drive are just this one big zone now, and that might kind of work, but uh, there's definitely some interesting things that could happen there. Uh, and, you know, you know, is the layout of the file system specific to the drive, and how does that work? Um, other thing is, uh, if if it is going to be a problem to swap from a not SMR drive to an SMR drive, can maybe we make it a, a, a something you set when you create a pool, saying treat this not SMR drive as an SMR drive, mm -hmm. uh, simulate it, yeah, until, but until we get the real world. and then you can swap so that in the future you can swap it with an SMR drive. But if you don't know what the zones are going to be on the drive you haven't bought yet, doesn't how does yet. that work? Uh, and then also. Is there a possibility of uh, like a geom layer that would coalesce random writes and put them in a proper zone and maybe mm -hmm. uh, have that coalescing be backed by some persistent memory? You know, uh, one that would use the random IO zone to buffer up stuff or an SSD or flash or something and then 
always write out these contiguous zones uh, so that the upper layer wouldn't have to know about it sure. and maybe abstract it away. Uh, yeah, and so then we talked about encryption. Um, you know, a bunch of people are, you know, if you want encryption, we have Gelly full disk encryption, you know, that works. Uh, but then we talked a bit about what use cases people have for encryption so we could understand it better. Uh, you know, obviously, the FreeNAS case is we want to be able to boot the system and, you know, most of the stuff's not encrypted, but there's these couple of data sets maybe that need to be encrypted. Mm -hmm. uh, and we talked a bit about uh, PEFs because the author of PEFs was there as well. Okay. Uh, and he's working, looking at uh, rewriting parts of it and making it better. Uh, and mm -hmm. it might, you know... Was an eye towards plugging into ZFS or something? Well, it's already set up to work on top of ZFS. And, on top of anything, yeah. but I mean yeah. ZFS-specific stuff? I don't think anything ZFS-specific, but just improving okay. it in general. Sure. Um, because maybe that's the right answer for I just have this one data set and I want it to be encrypted. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the examples that Jordan brought up for like a free NAS is I have this directory and I've decided now that I want it to be encrypted. Yeah. Obviously, without something like Secure Erase, you can't just even if you do copy it to a new encrypted data set, the old ones might be laying around somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that one doesn't necessarily make that much sense. But uh, in general, it was expressed that maybe we do want to have some kind of per data set encryption option. But that sure. raises the question, how do we control the keys? Do we allow multiple keys? And so on. Mm -hmm. uh, what meta metadata needs to be encrypted and what has to not be encrypted for the pool to work properly? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe we always encrypt the pool level metadata and then optionally for each data set. But then, you know, we have to make sure it's not the case. You know, one of my reasons for not using encryption is I don't want to somehow lose a key and lose all my data. And sure. so if I encrypt only this one data set, I may be accepting that risk. But I know that I'll still always be able to import my pool and boot and not crash mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so, yes, it's mostly left questions with what are the use cases. So, uh, you know, if you have a specific use case for encrypted one partition, uh, one specific data set but not another, uh, it'd be interesting to hear about that. You know, for some of the cases, it seems like the easier answer is make a Zvol, Gelly encrypt it, put UFS on it, and have your one little thing of encrypted storage. Mm, I like the idea of having per data set encryption, though. Multiple yeah. users on a box, multiple jails, each one with their own key on encryption. Right. Uh, the big thing is that it stays encrypted during replication. Mm -hmm. Right. That was, one. you know, that's the advantage of something like PEFs over uh, something like Gelly for mm -hmm. that particular use case. Uh, but in general, the desire was to be able to start the system in some services without requiring a key and then only mount inserting uh, data sets would require a key or whatever. Sure. And that's when uh, um, the PEFS author was talking about his PAM module and so on. All right. Uh, there was a little bit of talk about RAID Y, uh, which is just the name that Powell came up for, for a more RAID 5-like setup for RAID Z, uh, instead of RAID mm -hmm. Z. So instead of taking you know a block of 128K and dividing it up across the drives, this would write entire blocks to OneDrive as a column in the stripe. So you would write one entire block to each drive and then write the parity. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and so this would, one of the biggest things this would do is 
the number of IOPS you have would go back up. Instead of all of the drives in a RAID Z having the IOPS of one drive, you would mm -hmm. be able to do more work because you would uh, be doing one big contiguous read off one disk to read a certain block. And so if you write five blocks in a row, you can have all the drives working on a, their own big chunks at once. Uh, and some of the advantage to that, although it's still questions about how to make it work with um, without having the right hole that RAID 5 does. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so a whole disk would only be on one disk, so multiple readers would uh, conflict with each other less. So if you're reading multiple files at once, uh, it's more likely you read one block from this disk and one block from that disk mm -hmm. instead of both of them have to read one chunk, one way. fraction of each block of every disk. And so the disks end up maybe seeking more than they would have otherwise. Uh, but also, this might allow additional drives to be added to a VDEV after the fact. You would be able to widen it, right? Because you wouldn't sure. have to rewrite any of the blocks. You would just widen it and then recalculate the parity. Um, or maybe you actually be able to somehow mark in the parity information in a way so that you won't have to recalculate it. Um, and then it might give better read, random read performance because you'd be... Uh, using the more heads differently. Uh, oh, the other option that it might allow is upgrading to more parity. Uh, because if you have these columns instead, mm -hmm. you can just say, add a new drive and use it just to store a second set of parity. So you'd be able to upgrade from RAID Y1 to RAID Y2. Sure. Um, that could be kind of helpful on the yeah. fly. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. Uh, we don't, I don't think we came to any concrete conclusions about it. But it's definitely an option. Oh, still sounds like quite a lot was discussed there. Yeah. Um, and then we came to the third session. <laughs> All right. Uh, and so in this one, uh, we basically had Matt Aarons take over and just talk about uh, the future of ZFS and so on for the last session. Uh, the downside of that, we end up not running out of time and not ever doing the working group reports thing where we just mm -hmm. talked about... Uh, we summarized some of the stuff we talked about the ZFS group, but we didn't hear much from a summary about what the people in the CAM and user space and SMR groups actually got to talk about. Sure. Uh, but he talked about the uh, device removal support um, and how that's, you know, he's been talking about it for a while, but it's almost here. Uh, interestingly, it has less capability than it did when we interviewed about him, interviewed him about it a while ago. Uh, yeah. So before, right, we were told that it would work on stripes and mirrors. Turns out now it's only going to work on stripes uh, because when it does the work of, of um, relocating the data, it's not checking the checksums. So if you mm -hmm. have two drive, a, a mirror, when it reads from like one of the disks and it doesn't check the checksum, so if that disk give it bad data, it would write the wrong data instead of the right data. Um, and what it should do is check the checksum and read from the other another drive in the mirror to get if it if the checksum fails sure um so for the first version it's not going to support removing a mirror well um v2 yeah so in order to support mirrors needs to verify the checksum of the data and if it's bad read from the other side of the mirror um what was interesting is i pointed out a, a way a workaround for that if people really needed it uh that Matt Aaron's apparently had never thought of. Oh, that's so if you have mirrors, if you use the detach command, you can take all the disks out of the mirror except for the last one, and then it's a stripe, and then you can use VDEV removal. Although, mm. at that point, you're accepting the risk that if any sure. data 
fails its checksum that you're losing it. But uh, so if you're willing to put up with that, you would still be able to remove a, uh, a, a mirror device. But, you know, at first Matt was kind of hesitant to release a feature that didn't work with most of the types of, of um, uh, VDEV that they have in ZFS. Uh, but the people from IX pointed out the most common thing is people adding a new device and forgetting the log keyword or the cache keyword mm -hmm. or something and adding a single drive stripe to the end of their pool when they actually meant to add an L2 arc or, a, or an sure. S log or whatever. Uh, and so they would really, really like this feature. Yeah, it just uh, it fixes that one most yeah. common mistake. Yeah. And then Matt's like, well, what, what if they meant to add an S log mirror and forgot the S log keyword or the log keyword but had the mirror one and they had this mirror and, that, and that's when i pointed out they could use detach to undo that if they were sure that's what they wanted to do uh, okay. so hopefully that one uh might come to us sooner rather sure. than later even if it's missing some of the features because it will solve the biggest uh issue people have which is accidentally adding a device incorrectly and that causing mm -hmm. a problem uh, and maybe in the future we can solve the problem of uh, you know, I actually need to remove a mirror set from my pool. Sure. Uh, then for RAID Z, uh, there's a number of problems, uh, including, you know, alignment constraints. Uh, the blocks end up needing to line up exactly right. Uh, you want to make sure the blocks are spread across devices. So uh, when it when it picks up the blocks, it's, it's off the old drive and writes them somewhere on the new drive. Uh, we want to make sure that the original block and the parity block don't both end up on the same drive. Because then if that one drive fails, you've lost yeah. both copies of it. Uh, and so it's much more complicated and they don't have support for it yet. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, if it has different sector sizes and a bunch of different things could happen, that would cause problems. It's more complicated quickly. Yes. Uh, but the biggest one is that uh, you want to make sure the blocks stay spread out the right way so that you don't accidentally you remove parity on some of the information while relocating it off the old device. Mm -hmm. uh, then you talked about channel programs. Uh, apparently these are uh, mostly coming along and are, are mostly working now. So this is a uh, little ZFS specific domain version of Lua built into the kernel mm -hmm. that allows you to execute a small ZFS script uh, with all the yeah atomically with all the locks held so you know you can say loop over all these snapshots and or all these data sets and destroy them and all their snapshots currently you do that it generates the list and then sends those delete commands and it can get halfway through it find that in the meantime a new snapshot has been created that blocked you from deleting that data set that didn't exist when you generated the list of things to delete mm -hmm. uh, and then it breaks the operation and it's like oh now your application has to figure out how far you were and redo it all and it's Start nasty over, yep. yeah um, so this would basically as one transaction group do it all and it would either be done or not um, so that yeah allows you to perform multiple administrative actions as a single atomic operation and uh, this is going into production uh, with Delphix so we're pretty sure it's gonna be okay um, the first number, first version has limited number of operations and doesn't let you inject your own yet. But the idea is that you'd be able to root would be able to write new scripts and add them into ZFS for users to use. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, it uses a ZFS private variant of Lua because you know it changes the default um, type for numbers from being like floating point to being a 64-bit integer because that's what uh, ZFS uses and so on. 
and it syncs all the actions down as a single transaction group. Currently, you know, if you do a bunch of these commands separately, each one's a separate transaction group, uh, which can cause problems and so on. Uh, then it raises the question, how is this going to get pulled into FreeBSD? Obviously, this is going to have to go in the kernel. And it's like, you know, uh, how do we end up avoiding having three copies of Lua in the kernel? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're small enough. Maybe that's okay. But, you know, uh, Matt Aarons was like, yes, well, we'll be the first one. So we won't have to do anything. It'll be the job of the second person uh, mm -hmm. to consolidate theirs and ours together into a common one. Uh, and then the third person will benefit uh, by sure. that work already being done, and they can just hook onto it. <laughs> um, currently, the available operations are destroy a snapshot, uh, destroy a data set, or iterate over all snapshots or clones of a specific data set. Uh, but obviously, more of those will come. Uh, oh. There's some built-in limits to prevent uh, infinite loops and stuff like that. Uh, you know... Uh, there will be a time limit and I think an operation limit or something. Mm -hmm. uh, or No, sorry, a time limit and a memory limit so that these scripts can't be used to uh, kill the system. Sure. Currently, the problem is if you hit the time limit, your script just stops, but all the things is done are left done. Versus? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So normally with the atomic operation of the thing... Uh, you want it to either be done or not done, but if it fails, it's actually, usually that's caused by the system crashes. Mm -hmm. And so it's fine. But if you decide to cancel the operation, the problem is all your in-memory state of ZFS is all the modified one. Mm -hmm. So how does it roll back a live system to the last transaction group other than, you know, basically the only option is either allow the half-finished operation to be committed or panic and neither of those is really what you want right is, no, no. Is, is this is specifically here to stop uh somebody from being able to do a denial of service attack by zfs commands uh making it panic if they do is really not what you want you almost need like a, a private uh snapshot instant snapshot that you, you right yeah for the script and then if it doesn't finish we roll back to that private one which isn't exposed anywhere but right but you would yeah you'd have to what you'd need is like copy on write in memory of yeah, yeah. all the ZFS internal state. Ugh. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in building that, please talk to the OpenZFS mailing list. Mm -hmm. um, and then Veterans uh, mostly uh, was asking for people to code review things. Um, there's the new persistent L2 arc code. It's finished, needs code review before it can go in. Uh, this will basically, in the background, will read over the L2 arc and load all the uh, pointers that sit in, in memory in the arc, saying that this block is actually in the L2 arc, back into memory after a reboot. Mm -hmm. um, it's specifically designed not to block the reboot, so it happens in the background af as the systems, uh, after the system's booted. So I don't know if it'll help very much with what you wanted, which was... Yeah, with the boot time. Yeah, so... You, you know, well, in order for it to help I mean, with the boot time, it would have to stop the boot and load all the data in and then continue yeah, the boot and probably make it take longer. If you're running, even with the backgrounding, if you're running a really fast SSD or something, even if it's Hopefully small, it doesn't that's take still going right? to load faster than your regular hard disk is doing its boot. Eventually, it's going to catch up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe it'll hit some stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, then there's work on a write-back cache. Uh, this one is basically... Kind of like the slog, but different. 
and basically where all writes would go to a dedicated SSD or pool of SSDs or NVMEs or whatever, and then later get flushed out to the disks, maybe as fast sure. as they can be, but not. Uh, this is mostly, it seems, to deal with bursty writes where, you know, a whole bunch of writes come in all at once faster than the disk can keep up, but we have some SSD or something to buffer them to, and it's, it's kind of, you know, it's filling up, and then we're writing to disk as fast as we can, and eventually maybe we catch up, and then it gets ahead and we catch mm -hmm. up, and so on. Um, I guess I was, my hands went off the screen, you couldn't see, but basically a, a FIFO where you're adding stuff, uh, yeah, yeah, you're adding stuff in, and then or it's being added in, but you're writing it to disk at a constant rate, and then, you know, if the incoming data slows down, maybe you can catch up, and so on. Um, where that one would be really interesting is if you could then have, if you use that with mirrors or something to allow you to have a slow disk actually maybe be a different machine on the other end of replication or something. Mm -hmm. So the writes come in and they go to the SSD and then as fast as possible, they're being replicated to the other machine. But the writes already been acknowledged as on stable storage on the first machine sure, or something. You know, that's kind of a, like you and I have talked before about maybe, what we need is like a lazy mirrored VDEV. That's right. Where it's fine as, as long as one of the, yeah, it's fine as one of, as long as one of the drives in the mirror has it all the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but the second drive, maybe on the other side of replication can get it later. Or I think in our case, it was, we wanted to have mirrors on our laptops, but we have one SSD and one hard drive. That's right. We want to get all the speed to the SSD but have the backup of the hard drive. You know, my SSD, I'm not writing to it constantly, so I, no. I don't want to slow stuff down while I wait for the hard drive, but I want the hard drive to be able to keep the mirror. Yeah, just like a persistent replication task running yeah. in the background, essentially. Uh, and then the other one was large denode support. Um, mm -hmm. So on Luster, uh, the ZFS on Linux for uh, the Luster FS that they use at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, they keep a lot of system attributes or metadata uh, and in, in ZFS, there's this bonus buffer, which is this little le bit of leftover space in the block pointer that has like 168 bytes of available space. And they end up using more than that. And when you do, it creates a spill block, and that can be slower. Uh, so they have uh, support for large denodes where basically they'd have two or three denodes. And so you'd have that 168 bytes plus a whole second denode or uh, even a third denode to store all this stuff in. And... Uh, it turns out that's where you store Samba uh, ACL. So if you edit the ACLs on Windows and, and use that, that's where those get stored. So it's actually maybe of interest to uh, BSD people as well for file servers and so on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and there was also talk about uh, a bug that had happened there before where when they got too big, the spill block thought it was allocated or thought it wasn't allocated and could get freed and cause problems but apparently that one's fixed uh but anyway we talked about that and then lastly there was a short discussion about open zfs on ubuntu uh but matt aaron said he hadn't actually heard from anybody on the at ubuntu or anything about any of it and didn't know but he'd be interested in talking to them about it well we'll cover that in a moment here's yes. the news roundup mm -hmm. anyway uh <laughs> That was a that's, bit that's longer a than I intended it to be. So that was uh, quite an interview about just what happened at this uh, storage summit. And uh, like I said, I couldn't tell you much about what happened in the CAM working group because I wasn't in it. Sure. Uh, we'll have to do the same type thing for Tokyo when we get back and mm -hmm. maybe do like a whole segment just on that. 
Okay, we got our news roundup to get to, but really quick before we do that, of course, let's mention the other sponsor this week, which is going to be DigitalOcean. Mm-hmm. And of course, DigitalOcean.com is where you go and create your account, get signed up, and you can start rolling droplets. So so they know where you, they heard about or where you heard about DigitalOcean. We have mm-hmm. this cool coupon code called FreeBSDNow. Yep. Type that in. That gives you a $10 credit. And just so you know, you can run OpenBSD and NetBSD up there and know that FreeBSDNow coupon code doesn't limit you in running just FreeBSD. Yep. That just gives you a vanilla $10 credit you can take and apply to any of your VMs. So even if you're running Linux VMs or Open or Net, um, definitely you'll want to do that because that's good for about two months of their uh, lowest end VM, which is yep. still backed by SSDs and gives you a terabyte of transfer a yep. month, which is pretty darn phenomenal for the price, about five bucks a month. Yeah. So uh, definitely go get it set up. I know last week we talked about some of the things we do with ours. Like I run a backup mail server and there's a mumble server for uh, game days we do here. And then yep. we can use uh, our, uh, our status. Our, our status and maintenance page is there for Scale Engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of the tutorials we're talking about coming up on the show is uh, they do it theirs on DigitalOcean, sure. but you can or can't. It doesn't matter. Up to you. Um, but yeah, like you said, SS, back by SSDs, uh, they give you DNS management so you can actually control the reverse DNS of the IPs you get assigned. Mm-hmm. 99.99% uptime SLA. Uh, global image transfer. So you snapshot your machine, you can copy that to any of their data centers and use it. Uh, private networking inside the same data center. So if you have a bunch of VMs, you can actually have traffic between them that doesn't count against your terabyte of That's traffic really or cool. more that you get with each VM. Mm-hmm. And like you said, locations in Europe, uh, US, and Asia. And uh, yeah. actually, I've heard rumors of another data center opening up in Asia. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. Uh, that would definitely be handy. So I think the existing mm-hmm. one's in, what, Singapore? And yes. Then- Maybe they'll add one uh, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. We'll, we'll, of course, bring that to you when we find out uh, where that ends up landing. Mm-hmm. But uh, go ahead and get signed up today. I mean, start using that two-month trial. I'm sure there's some services you could use thrown up in the cloud there. I mean, heck, you could send backups up there. Do whatever you want. It's pretty cool that uh, mm-hmm. they offer this. And, of course, uh, check out their site. Find the location nearest to you if you want to get really good uh, round-trip times, too. Okay, so time for the news roundup. So tell us a little about this first one. Uh, it looks like we got a blog article about uh, one week with NetBSD 7.0. How did that go? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the blog author has uh, had previously done a series on using Solaris 10 mm-hmm. uh, and found that to be quite successful. So he thought he'd give a try on NetBSD 7. Hmm, okay, uh, how did that go? Yeah, uh, so I think originally he was saying he was, uh, he's been an OpenBSD user for a few years. Uh, but it doesn't support his NVIDIA card mm-hmm. uh, in his new laptop or his current laptop. Uh, and so um, apparently he didn't know that FreeBSD had the NVIDIA driver, and so he went to NetBSD. Hmm. Uh, and apparently he also had problems on FreeBSD because his Firefox was crashing. Uh, anyway, uh, he goes on to start up uh, using NetBSD, uh, and you know he's like... Uh, Saying it's familiar territory for him. He's been using BSD variants uh, since 2006. Uh, you know, his, with his recent look at SunOS, triggered uh, by not having the NVIDIA support, uh, he played around a bit and got to NetBSD. Uh, he said that the this is the... Uh, for those with a Catholic taste for Unix, uh, NetBSD is a keg party at the Vatican. <laughs> if you're... Uh, 
an absolute Unix beginner or have been living with uh, you know, a Ubuntu-based Linux distro for far too long, then you may fail stranded at first by NetBSD's sparseness. You'll find yourself uh, staring into the abyss of a blinking cursor on the screen. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you uh, have the presence of mind to type Stardex, you know, you'll get the TWM window manager, which is nothing more than a couple of X-term windows. Pretty Spartan. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, he talks about how you can customize that and add applications to your right-click menu uh, if that's really what you want to. But uh, he digs into it more. He says, uh, as for NetBSD itself, I can't think of any major productivity application that can't be installed. And most of the multimedia stuff works as well. Hmm. Uh, so we got it up and running. Uh, he says, over the next couple of uh, posts, he hopes to solve some of the problems and, and dig into it further, including... Uh, he, uh, YouTube didn't have any audio in his Firefox on that BSD, uh, but we'll talk about it in a minute. In a follow-up post, he got that working. Uh, he wanted to get these wireless working. He wanted Flash, which I don't know if you can do that on NetBSD. Yeah, um, hmm? yeah no Linux emulation layer yeah. that I know of. They might have an old one. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, then he has his digital camera. He wanted to be able to read mm -hmm. from the SD card uh, while it was still in the camera, I think, when connecting mm -hmm. the camera over USB, and playback videos that he recorded. Uh, and then he wanted to install Audacity and then obviously get a fancy desktop like uh, GNOME or Mate or uh, KDE or XFCE. So uh, in the first follow-up post, he solved his uh, audio problem. He got uh, LibreOffice installed, although... Complained slightly that the package name is L Office and not LibreOffice or LibreOffice hmm. 4. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would have confused me at first. Yeah. Or maybe, no, it is LibreOffice, but he, he had to use LibreOffice star to find the right thing. Uh, oh, okay. I really love the package search command for helping you find the package name. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he got stuff done and tweaked the system and played with it a bit and uh, got his audio working so he could... Uh, play audio in Firefox and it looks like yes the NetBSD wiki says to CD to multimedia slash Adobe flash plugin uh, and uh, apparently once he accepted the license for that it actually worked nice mm -hmm. nice that's pretty cool uh, and then he responded to some uh, feedback saying what do you mean TWM and MWM are ugly <laughs> That's craziness. Yep. Uh, and uh, in general, and then he got some uh, pushback about his OpenBSD thing uh, with the NVIDIA drivers. And then uh, in another follow-up post, he uh, got uh, XFCE running on his NetBSD. Okay. So he could have the uh, fancy desktop that he wanted. We've made it to 2001 now. We're, yep. That's awesome. <laughs> Great. Okay. But yeah, uh, he seems to have gotten most of the things off his list done, but uh, I think we'll maybe we'll see more f posts in the future as he uh, gets Audacity and maybe his digital camera working. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next up. So what was this one? We, te we teased this a little bit earlier. We're talking about ZFS on Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is happening there? I know this isn't necessarily FreeBSD specific, but still, yes. it's interesting to see that this is happening. So... Give us a little background on that, Alan. Yeah, so as you may have heard, uh, Ubuntu 16.04, which mm -hmm. uh, is scheduled to come out in a couple of weeks, uh, will include ZFS baked directly into the Ubuntu uh, and supported by Canonical. Uh, so mm -hmm. ZFS uh, is one of the most beloved features of Solaris, uh, universally coveted by every Linux system in with a Solaris background or, uh, you know, most people that have used ZFS ever. 
uh, mm-hmm. really like it. Uh, he says, to our delight, we'll be happy to make open ZFS available on every Ubuntu system. Uh, and then answers uh, some commonly asked questions like, what does supported by Canonical actually mean in this case? Mm-hmm. And it means that you will find ZFS.ko automatically built and installed on your Ubuntu system. No more using the DKMS thing where you compile it yourself. Sure. Um, also, the user space ZFS utils Linux package will be available in the Ubuntu main repository, not the optional universe repository that you have to add. Uh, and it will have security updates provided by Canonical. Interesting. Okay. So that version of ZFS will be supported uh, by the official repos uh, for the life of the long-term support release. Uh, the article also provides a quick example uh, tutorial of setting up uh, LXC or LCX or whatever they call it, uh, the Linux container uh, setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, backed by ZFS. Uh, actually, in the example, when they run the command, uh, it asks if they want to uh, y- provide block devices to use with ZFS or just uh, or not. And so you can see when he answers, uh, would you like to use an existing block device and say no, it actually uh, just creates a file on their existing file mm-hmm. system and uses that as the backing for ZFS. Which is a great way to play with ZFS, but don't use that in yeah, production, don't, please. Don't do anything really real with that. Yeah. Uh, oh, so yes, when you when you run LXD init to set up the Linux containers, it asks if you would like to uh, use a directory or ZFS as your backing store. And you say ZFS, and then do you have an existing ZFS pool? You want to create a new one, and then what do you want to name the pool? And then do you have some hard drives to use or partitions to use for it, or do you just want a file? And then if a file, how big? And uh, do you want uh, LXD to be available over the network? Uh, hmm. But you can see a quick example here of them actually... Uh, using it for uh, setting up a bunch of containers. Mm-hmm. So what's this about the Software Freedom Conservancy? Uh, ah, yes. So the uh, Software Freedom Conservancy, which is uh, a group that you know talks about or uh, helps enforce open source licenses, uh, is expected to make an official statement about combining uh, the CDDL code of ZFS with mm-hmm. the Linux kernel. Uh, I get the feeling that they won't be in favor of it, uh, sure. but I don't know if that will cause anything to change. Okay, well, too late. It's happening, I guess, at this point. I, I think that's what Canonical is hoping for. Right? They're like, well, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, personally, you know, the mixed minds on that, uh, obviously, ZFS is great and everyone should have access to it. Uh, and if you are doing containers, even if they're the lame Linux containers, you'll be much happier doing those on ZFS than on something else. That's true. Uh, and we got to make ZFS more of a like, universal file. Yes. Uh, really nice to have a universal file system that works everywhere. Um, but, you know, selfishly, it's it, it's sad to see ZFS, or uh, FreeBSD lose one of its kind of unique selling features of mm-hmm. ZFS. But, okay. You know, uh, ZFS is so great that it's, it's a human right and people shouldn't be denied <laughs> by their license. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Well, moving on here, we have an article about polling is a hack. Server send events, event source with gevent, flask, nginx, and freebsd. So, wow, yes. that's a, a brew there. What did they do with all that? <laughs> right. So, um, the traditional way, if you had, you know, a, a web application, you needed to check if something new had happened on the, from the web server, is you would poll, right? You'd just say, "Hey, it's JavaScript. Every ten seconds, call the website and see if there's anything new," right? Uh, but that's a hack. And if you know, if you have a thousand people sitting on your website all the time, then yeah. you're going to get these requests quite a bit, and that will 
hurt your website performance. Uh, so server send events is a new system with uh, JavaScript where you can basically tell JavaScript to just sit here and listen, and the web server will tell you whenever there's something new for you to do. Hmm. Um, and so they use Flask, which is a Python framework for building applications. Uh, so they build the so basically the tutorial walks you through setting up Python, uh, building the Flask app, hooking it up to Nginx, uh, installing and configuring Nginx on FreeBSD, so that uh, your website will be able to do all this. Interesting. Okay. So uh, it has everything you need. They have a overview here of what you'll have at the end. You have a, a new user added to the system called FreeBSD, and that's where your web app will live. You have a web app repository where the application will live, and you have the actual application files. Uh, then this stream directory, which will be your source for your, all your events, uh, the special URL JavaScript will use. Mm -hmm. um, you'll have a supervisor log that will show your app being restarted and dealt with by the supervisor thing. Uh, your web app will run as a daemon or service in the background, and you'll be able to start, stop, and restart it. You'll have Python virtual environments so that your app uh, can have different versions of dependencies than some other app, and you'll have your web server. So then they go through, you know, after you install Python and Flask, they give you a, a sample application here that'll do the, the work and return random numbers over the event uh, source socket. Mm -hmm. uh, then they uh, give you the JavaScript to actually put on the website to see it actually working and showing this on in your web browser. And then the server config where you, you know, install Nginx and the Python supervisor and SQLite and Vertenv and Git and so on and set it up. And they have an Nginx config and everything you need to settle this up on a FreeBSD machine. Very nice. Very yeah. Nice. Uh, it looks quite cool. Okay. Okay. So lastly for the news roundup, we have an excellent article uh, called Why FreeBSD written by Hamza Sheikh mm -hmm. discussing why FreeBSD is now his clear choice for learning Unix. So uh, the article is actually really well written and pretty lengthy, but there's some great parts I wanted to uh, share with you guys. So just quoting the article here, he says, there were rough edges in the Linux world, and some of them exist even today. Choosing the right distribution, distro for task at hand, the first and most difficult decision to make. While this is a strength of the Linux community, it's also a weakness. This exasperated, um, exasperated the, the toxic infighting within the community in the last few years. A herd of voices believes it's their right to bring down a distro community because it's not like their distro choice. Forking upstream projects has somehow become taboo. Hurling of use and mailing lists is acceptable. Helping new users is limited to lambasting their distro of choice. Creating conspiracy theories over software decisions is the way to go. Copyleft zealots roam social media declaring non-copyleft free software heretic abominations. It all boils down to an ecosystem soured by the presence of maniacs who have the loudest voices and they seem to be everywhere you turn. Where is the engineering among all this noise? ButterFS, baking for a long time, is still nowhere near ZFS in stability or feature parity. SystemD is an insatiable entity that feeds on every idea in sight and devours indiscriminately. Wayland was promised years ago, and, it, and its time has yet to arrive. Containers are represented by Docker that neither securely contains applications nor makes them easy to manage in production. Firewalling is dithering between firewall D, NF tables, uh, etc. System tap cannot match details. He said, in the same time span, what do the various BSDs offer? 
Well, you have PF, CARP, ZFS, Hammer, OpenSSH, Jails, Package Source, Software Ports, DTrace, Hardware Portability, just to name a few. Few would deny that the BSDs have delivered great engineering with free software licenses to the entire world. To me, they appear to be better flag bearers of free software with engineering to back it. Which, that's a mouthful, but definitely well put. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he then goes through uh, some of the various BSDs and some of the specifics on why FreeBSD was the logical choice for his particular situation. But at the end, he has a great summary on the community as a whole that I wanted to share with you folks. Mm-hmm. So he says, finally, and maybe repeating myself here, I have nothing but praise for the community, be it BSD Now, mailing lists, Reddit, Twitter, uh, Linux Fest Northwest, CGL. People have encouraged me, answered my questions, and filed bugs for me. I have been welcomed and made part of the community with open arms. These are reasons good enough for me to use FreeBSD and contribute to it. So uh, very well put and a very well thought out article. And he goes through a lot of the different details on the different BSDs as well, which we kind of skipped over here. But definitely worth your reading if uh, Mm -hmm. you have some time. Yeah, uh, there's another quote he has here from uh, Matthew Garrett. It says, uh, I am who I am because people made the choices to release their software under licenses that permitted examination, modification, and redistribution. I am who I am because I am able to participate in communities that take advantage of those freedoms to produce new and better software. Okay, that's pretty cool. Okay, time for feedback and questions, and we got beastie bits to get into, but really quick, we got to mention the last mm-hmm. sponsor this week, which is going to, of course, be Tarsnap. You can go to tarsnap.com slash now and get signed up right now. If you started right now, you'd probably be done before we finish talking about the next couple yep. of beastie bits, so definitely is not going to take you long. You can download a client from there, so it doesn't matter what you're running, Windows, Linux, BSD, OSX, whatever. There's probably going to be a client up there ready to go for you, but if you're paranoid like a lot of us, the nice thing about Tarsnap is the source code's all open, so you can check it, audit it, and then compile it yourself from the source to make sure that you're getting exactly what you expect. No uh, hidden backdoors or Trojans or anything else. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, not many backup solutions that offer anywhere near that level of transparency, so that's why we're inclined over here at BSC Now to trust Tarsnap with our data, because we can be sure that what we're sending is exactly what we're supposed to be sending, and nothing's leaking okay. out. Everything's encrypted before it leaves the box, and Colin and whoever else, uh, nefarious people on the remote side don't have access to the data, exactly. which is pretty stupid. Uh, the cool. important thing is you don't have to trust Colin and you don't have to trust Amazon. It's encrypted with your key mm-hmm. and only you have the key and it never leaves your computer. That's right. That's right. So uh, definitely go check it out today. Get signed up. Put a few bucks in your account and start doing backups. It's all very uh, tar-like. So if you already know how to use the tar command a little bit, you're 90% of the way there. So uh, get yourself set up. Throw it in cron and kind of set it and forget it. Backups are done. And you're only paying for the new bits that you send. So everything's deduplicated beforehand. So helps keep the cost down that way. So uh, definitely check it out today and get signed up. And if you talk to anyone, tell them you heard about it here on BSD Now. Okay, so getting into the beastie bits really quick. We'll rapid fire these mm-hmm. at you guys. So first up, uh, OpenSense came out with a new release, 16.1.3. Anything you want to throw on that one, Alan, before we move to the next one? Uh, not really. Uh, just uh, grabbing some patches from upstream mostly. Okay, good deal. So check that out. Also, uh, next up, we have uh, copies of FreeBSD Mastery specialty file systems that are now seen yes. in the wild. And we have a link to Twitter yes, there. Uh, uh, Marie stuck uh, a copy of the book in front of her little rack of machines there, uh, but 
I love price. the cover art that Michael got for uh, that book. It actually wraps around to the back of the book as well. Great. Okay, next up. So PF yes. Sense, if you're looking for training for that, that's now available in Europe. And we have a link to that mm-hmm. over at netgate.com slash training. So definitely check that out if you're looking to uh, bone up on your PF Sense expertise. Yes, uh, that will be in the UK April 7th and 8th. Uh, in Bournemouth, uh, in London on the 12th and 13th, and in Frankfurt, Germany on May 17th and 18th. Great. Okay. Next up, a light BSD now has about 50 ports in the ports tree, which uh, for a 4.4 version mm-hmm. of BSD, uh, old school, that's actually pretty cool that they're starting to build up a ports tree. And then it'll keep growing and growing. Next thing you know, you'll have thousands, yeah. right? But uh, interesting. So keep up the good work there. Okay, so it looks like the ports tree's already been locked for uh, upcoming OpenBSD 5.9. Mm-hmm. So just a heads up there, that's uh, where they're currently at. Yep, and I guess that will and come then, out in, is it three months? So like May? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no unapproved commits. But yeah, close. Um, as usual, OpenBSD continues with their exactly timed releases. That's right, that's right. So we have a FreeBSD file system fund next at the uh, March semi-bug. Mm-hmm. It looks like Michael W. Lucas has a link there, so definitely check that out if you can get out That'll to that. That'll be uh, March 15th yeah. at 7 p.m. at Altair Engineering in uh, Southeast Michigan. Okay. And what's this next event here? Embedded Platforms, Event 46. Where is this one located? Uh, Southampton Street in London, UK. Okay. In the UK here, so we have another one. We're going to be talking about OpenBSD, WRT, Plan 9, etc. So if you can get out to that event, we have a link in the show yes, notes. this will be the 46th uh, OSHUG meeting. Uh, and then we'll talk okay. about the BSD family of operating systems, Linux, and OpenWRT. Great. Okay, so that's the Beastie Bits for the week. So let's hop right into feedback mm-hmm. and questions. And we go starting here with uh, Frank, who has a question about ZFS. He says, hey, guys. He says, first of all, I have a name proposal for your BSD admin tool, BSD Mon, since I think it's monitoring too, if I'm right, which it is. It's a benefit you can mispronounce it, BSD Daemon, or Beast Daemon. Nice. <laughs> I like it. He said, second, I spend a lot of time configuring own cloud on FreeBSD with Nginx, Postgres, uh, PHP, and Let's Encrypt on three jails with IO Cage. If you're interested in a tutorial, I'll write one yes, based please. on my notes. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> Send that over, Frank. We'll uh, we'll definitely get that on a future episode. Maybe if you do it soon enough, maybe we can do that for the week when we're uh, in Tokyo or something. Highlight that. That might be cool. Okay. Third, his question. He said, "I've got a cheap V server with one core, four gigabyte of di- uh, forty gigabyte disk space, and one gig of RAM uh, for playing with own cloud and a few other things for myself. I read all the time that ZFS needs at least eight gigabytes of memory." but my swap isn't really used. Would you please be so kind and explain this requirement in more detail? When will I need more RAM? Why does ZFS need so much RAM at all? And what are the downsides with limited RAM? Under conditions, uh, which conditions is less RAM sufficient? I'm sure this would be of interest for a lot of people. Uh, the biggest ones are that, well, ZFS will, if the system is low in memory, will evict stuff from the arc to uh, make more room. There are certain things like files that you're in the middle of using that can't be evicted. And so mm-hmm. at some point it can't give up any more memory. Uh, and, you know, uh, I guess I actually forgot to mention this during our whole talk of uh, what happened at the uh, um, storage summit. But 
out in the hallway over uh, while sharing some chocolatey pastry thing uh, during snack time. Uh, I was talking to Kirk about the uh, the ZFS VFS interaction problems uh, that are holding up the release of FreeBSD 10.3 because it causes uh, your system to run out of RAM and hang uh, and kill all the running programs on your computer when you run out of memory because ZFS ends up hogging all the memory when it's not supposed to. Uh, mm-hmm. And out of that has come a series of patches that I think have solved the problem, actually. Uh, I'll be doing more testing on that tonight. But um, yeah, so... There are conditions under which ZFS can't give up any memory, and then once it has consumed all the memory, the out-of-memory killer process will go around killing everything running on the, all the programs you're running, trying to get more memory when there isn't any more to get because ZFS has taken it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are certain ZFS needs at least so much memory depending on your working set. So while it is possible to make it work on like a Raspberry Pi with 512 megs of RAM, uh, expect to have problems sometimes. But, you know, uh, if it's what you have, you can do it. Just, you know, uh, if... It'll require a little more handling. If you you do that, you're not allowed to complain that ZFS is slow or that it takes all the RAM or anything like that. You know, we set the requirement to a number where it plays nicely. If you use give it less than that, you can't complain. But it Mm. mostly will work, but you have to be prepared for the gremlins. Okay. Well, hope that answered your question, Frank, and definitely send us that tutorial. We want it. Okay, next up is David. He says, first of all, English is not my native language, which, yeah. hey, that's fine. We get a lot of folks here. English is not their first language. So he said, uh, I'm an Arch Linux user. I study electronics at a high school here in Mexico. I have used Linux three to four years, but I'd like to change to BSD. Actually, I have a free BSD server in my home running on a Power G5 and OpenBSD on an iBook G4. I want to write drivers and help in an open source project, but I don't think Linux is the community that I'm looking for, and the GNU project is like a religion in which I don't want to participate. I want to help porting BSD to the Orange Pi 1 and other ARM boards. I think Linux isn't the right OS for embedded systems. I need a good BSD system that can run on my x86 system, my power PC devices, and my ARM boards. What do you recommend to me? And then he says, I started to be ashamed of the Linux community when I listened to Linux Unplugged. It's like they're scared of BSD or something. What a shame. He said, by the way, your show is awesome. Uh, so which BSD do we recommend well, there? I mean, uh, Those particular ones all pretty much work on all three, I think, all the major BSDs. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, sometimes NetBSD can be a little quicker in getting support for various sure. ARM things. Uh, but I know you know some particular ARM boards OpenBSD has a focus on as well. And FreeBSD works on a lot of things. Um, for the Orange Pi, it really depends how different it is. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of you know writing the hardware descriptions and so on, so that uh, FreeBSD knows where to find the device. Because unlike uh, a standard computer like an x86 system where you have a bus that tells you about all the cards and so on, you kind of have to know where they are with ARM and, and tell the OS. There's it can't really discover them. Um, sure. But then you know if it has certain different hardware for certain things those will need drivers uh you know if it's a slightly different model of the same thing maybe that's not very much work but if it's something completely new maybe it is um i don't know the answer there um one place to look is actually earlier in the show we mentioned uh it was um john sebastian uh had a wiki article on uh getting started with working on the graphics drivers uh 
mm-hmm. while not the same thing, it might help you uh, get started. Uh, just even with telling you sure. where to look and, and get an idea of what it requires. Um, there's also actually, there's a, a book, I think it's Joseph Kong wrote, um, Writing FreeBSD Device Drivers. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you can get that as an ebook so, for just a few dollars. Okay. Well, definitely play with them. I mean, if you know the specific ARM boards you're looking for, Google's yep. your friend. Google insert BSD here plus that board and see if they already have yep. some. The other one, uh, if you, on EFNet, if you jump into BSD MIPS, the chat room, that's where all the FreeBSD embedded people hang out, and uh, maybe they can uh, offer you pointers on the orange pie. Okay. Sounds good. Well, hope you help. we helped <laughs> you out there, David, and uh, keep up the good work. We look forward to seeing you in one of the communities Thanks. here. Okay, next up is Johnny, and he says, My request for a daily show was meant as a compliment. Yeah, we know. We <laughs> we figured as much, but still, it was fun. He said, I think I'd rather see you guys pounding out code for FreeBSD and PCBSD. Anyway, I have a real question this week. When PCBSD 11 is released, is Lumina planned to be the default desktop? I'm really liking it, and honestly, I think it should be. Thanks again for all the hard work, guys. Well, that's a quick one. I can answer that. Yes. So we've already switched um, our monthly current images, mm-hmm. uh, I think, since December. If you've installed any of them, Lumina is the only desktop out of box. That's just the default. Um, we've tried to, we've really slimmed down our ISO. So instead of four gigs, now they're two gigs. And we've you know, trimmed all the packages on there because after you've done the install, you can package add KDE or package add XFCE or whatever the heck you want at that point. But uh, out of box, you will definitely get Lumina desktop. And that's the one we're going to work on going forward. Oh, that was a fast well, one. Well, that's like the that. opposite of the next okay. one, then. <laughs> yes, yeah, you can yes, read the next uh, one. I've let go. you do too much, so yes. Uh, so Adam asks about the PCBSD installer and a bunch of other questions. So he says, I just took upon uh, myself to do a storage system experiment for work. Uh, my company has uh, wants to offload some rarely used data and have these uh, three spare Buffalo Terra Station uh, machines with three sets of four uh, two terabyte drives and one Buffalo Terra station uh, of a different model. The compute part uh, is an old uh, Snyder A4F, which is a Core 2 Duo T4100 with only four gigs of RAM and a 60 gig SSD. Uh, it's passively cooled and quiet. Uh, anyway, it's got a link to that if you want more info. This is, um, if the uh, experiment confirms the feasibility of this model, then we want uh, something better with lots of ECC RAM and a regular, on uh, you know, uh, kind of a regular server or whatever. Also, this is more or less for learning purposes since the hardware is underpowered and I'm new to BSD, ZFS, and iSCSI in general. Mm-hmm. So now he's got start. So he wants to use these three terror stations as iSCSI uh, block-based targets with ZFS. Although I've seen a number of BSD Now episodes, I'm not entirely sure how to approach this. Should I just export one LVM volume from each of the NASs and have a ZVOL out of them? Uh, in particular, uh, ZVOL is not the right term there. ZVOL is when you make a new block device uh, out of your pool, which I'm guessing what you're talking about is creating a pool. Um, has anyone... Uh, tried exporting each hard drive as a separate target or basically a LUN for each hard drive. Uh, that's what you would want to do if your Terra stations give you that option uh, because ZFS likes individual drives and um, 
the way it spreads out the work, it expects them to be individual drives. Whereas if you create, you know, if you just divide your whole NAS into three chunks and expose each one separately, when you write to all three at once, it's going to be slower probably because all three disks are all uh, four disks in your NAS are being used or whatever. So if you can expose each individual disk in the NAS to ZFS and then create your setup that way, that'll be better. Otherwise, probably, yeah, just... Uh, expose all three of your uh, separate machines as one LUN each, and then uh, do like RAID Z across them or something. Um, how much of the ZFS capability of data preservation uh, hampered by the use over iSCSI? Uh, in general, over iSCSI, it should be fine. Um, the problem you might run into is if your NASs are already doing some of that for you, then it's gonna end up doubled and you'll get less capacity. So in general, you try to get the NAS to do nothing and let ZFS do everything. Uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're building this for production, I would recommend just putting all the drives directly into the ZFS server and not having the external things. But since you have them and you're just trying to use them, uh, then you can use the iSCSI and do it that way. But in general, uh, no iSCSI should uh, not cause you much problems with ZFS's capabilities for data preservation because uh, when it gets back bad data, it will just use the other one automatically. Uh, next, he says he tried to, or uh, he has installed PCBSD's TrueOS, which is basically just vanilla FreeBSD with some extra tools. FreeBSD. Uh, just using the graphical installer. Uh, the process of preparing and installing one could probably be improved a bit in two regards. He says the installation media. Uh, presentation on Windows uh, using any tool like a Win32 disk imager shouldn't result in a USB stick unrecognizable by Windows. I'm not sure there's a way around that. Yeah, I would say making our installer on fat. Yeah. Well, the bigger problem is uh, Windows, when it sees GPT, yeah. it, if there's an EFI partition on it, it won't let you do anything to it. Like, I had to go into uh, disk part in Windows in administrator mode in order to delete the stuff so that the the USB stick would show up in Win32 disk image again so I can install it, I could flash a newer version of it onto the disk. It's very strange, mm -hmm. it, but that that's a Windows problem, honestly. I don't know. I don't know that any of the Linuxes show up any differently. I guess, do they use like the CDFS, right? So maybe then they work, but yeah. Anyway. Um, well, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think anybody else uses FAT32 on a USB stick. I think they cheat and just use like UDF or something, right? I'm not sure. Probably, which we don't have a way to boot happily. Although, um, having an extra partition on the USB stick that was FAT32 and had a copy of the PDF handbook, that's not a bad idea. Might be handy. Sure. Yeah. That could be cool. I'm going to have to look at that. Uh, that way, you know, if you don't have the internet, you can pull up the article or whatever. See something. Uh, it right. says uh, the IP address setup GUI is fixed uh, to four by three characters, uh, even blank, and it's not immediately clear that if you uh, type by mistake a uh, nineteen point two in the first column. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He said then you have to delete all the characters, move to zero, and etc. Yeah. Uh we will look into that. That actually is probably worthy of filing a bug report. We may have to change some QT. Yeah, because obviously, like when you type yeah. dot, it should jump to the next one, right? It does okay. well. It does. So I type in one. I type in ten dot, and then it jumps to the next one. Like that okay. does work. But I see what he's saying. If he accidentally clicks into it and clicks on the third character or the second character, then starts uh, typing. Like 
there's no easy way to shift everything back to the left to start meeting. Um, we can probably programmatically do that, but definitely go hit our uh, bugs.pcbsc.org site. File that one as a bug, and, and hopefully one of us will take a look at it soon. That could probably be adjusted. Yep. Uh, this is another note. I find that uh, the advertising on the show is done in a manner which benefits the audience and the sponsor since it's really describing what is good about the product rather than just saying, you know, this show brought to you by this. Go buy it kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, cool. And he says, uh, thanks for any advice and the great show. And the thing is, me and Alan use all yes. these products too. Like so every like, day. <laughs> we can talk mm-hmm. about them. Yes. <laughs> Yes, the last one. We have a last question here from Jeremy about video card support. He says, hello, Chris and Alan. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to BSD now for the past six to eight months and have uh, almost switched from Debian to BSD, uh, FreeBSD or PCBSD, multiple times due to listening to your podcast. I'm an uh, aspiring software developer and or sysmin. I find that I prefer the BSD license over what the, he says GPG, but he means GPL, uh, license offers. The only thing uh, holding me back is uh, fully committing this transition is unfamiliar with working on getting the graphics set up properly on my laptop or desktop and server. The issue isn't as critical for my desktop since it's mostly just a server, but uh, is getting much more important for my laptop. He's got a Dell E6500, which has an NVIDIA G98M, which is a Quadro NVS160M. If I'm not mistaken, that is the same video card I have in my laptop, and you just installed the NVIDIA Dash driver package, right? And the PCBSD installer will do that for you. Uh, He says, when I tried to switch in the past, I had issues trying to find help on getting a usable resolution. Yeah, uh, when you use the NVIDIA driver, I get full, like, 1920 by 1080 on my laptop. Uh, yeah, he's wondering if there's any advice you can give him. It's uh, yeah, if you're using vanilla FreeBSD, oh. you have to manually install and load the uh, NVIDIA driver, uh, and PCBSD will just do that for you. It will include it and will detect it in install time that you're using NVIDIA, and it'll make sure that package gets installed. Um, when you first boot, it'll give you the option to set resolution, mm-hmm. so you can tweak it there if it didn't auto detect properly for some reason. But uh, after the fact, um, you can always run NVIDIA settings with mm-hmm. uh, sudo and uh, change settings there and then save it to your xorg.com and then it'll persist across reboot. Yep. So That's what I do in order to, I also use that to enable the external output on my laptop when I'm doing uh, mm-hmm. presentations. Yeah, that, that's usually the best way to do it. So definitely give that a whirl. Let us know if you have any problems. Yeah. Okay, well that's great. Well that closes us up mm-hmm. for the week. So of course we want to remind folks, uh, send, send your uh, comments or questions. If you have any uh, stories you've found out on the net, we appreciate you sending mm-hmm. those in. I'm, I know a bunch of you have been. You've probably heard us mentioning those stories on the show, and a lot of times we hadn't caught those beforehand, exactly. so definitely send those in, especially on a week yes. like this, Alan, where you didn't even arrive till like, <laughs> yeah. last night. So, um, anyway, please keep doing that. We appreciate it. Feedback at bscnow.tv. We probably won't reply right away there, so uh, send it over, and we'll try and mention it on air or reply to it uh, the following Wednesday when we record the show. But uh, eventually we will get back to you. So we appreciate you sending all that in. We'll look forward to speaking to you same time next week. <laughs>